weekend on Book TV. Up next, live, in-depth, with author, playwright, and essayist, Gore Vidal. In a writing career spanning over 50 years, Gore Vidal has produced 22 novels, more than 200 essays, a memoir, and numerous short stories and screenplays. This month, one of his plays has been revived on Broadway, and the seventh installment in his American Chronicle series, a novel called The Golden Age, has been released. Here to join us on Book TV's in-depth series to talk about his life and work is Gore Vidal. Mr. Vidal, thanks for being here. Very nice to be here in my hometown. Do you remember the first time you put pen to paper? I sort of remember. I must have been about six or seven. And I was starting to read fairly grown-up books. And I had read a book. I didn't like children's books, but I had been given one called The Duck and the Kangaroo, a tale of unnatural affection. The duck was in love with the kangaroo. And I immediately started to write a book, what I thought was a book. It turned out to be pretty much The Duck and the Kangaroo, but uh, I think that was the beginning, that when I saw something that triggered me, there was a movie called um, The Mystery of the Blue Room, I think it was. And that really started me off. I must have been about eight or nine, and I really sat down to write a novel. Didn't get terribly far. Then when I was about 16, I used to go over the uh, Library of Congress, and I wrote half a book. I don't know what on earth it was about, but I'd just go there every day and write. The rest of the time I was reading. And what time there was left, I was reading aloud to my grandfather, Senator de Gore, who was with whom I lived pretty much until I was 10. And he was blind from the age of 10. And uh, he got me to read for him. And I was, the, I was his favorite grandchild, or, or child, because I loved reading. And his other children hated it. And he used to chuckle rather grimly after I'd been reading for five or six hours on end. He said, you know, John Milton's daughters went blind reading to their father. He would chuckle happily to himself. And now let's get to bimetallism. This is an exciting subject. Free silver, you see, was the basis of my founding the state of Oklahoma. This was, and we'd be off to the races. So I was getting great history lessons, along with reading skills. And it was, uh, what was nice about it, I got to talk to him grandfathers, particularly if they're senators, and blind and have to be looked after, aren't the best of company. But I was his reader, so I came into another... I wasn't just a grandchild. I was a reading person. And he held them in uh, high regard. Let me tell our audience a little bit about what we'll be doing this afternoon and uh, how they can join in in this. This series called In Depth, we have the opportunity to spend three full hours with authors who have spent many years writing and producing books. Gorvidal will be with us for the next three hours. We'll be talking for about 20 to 25 minutes and then opening up our phone lines for your questions for him from all around the country. We'll put that phone number on the bottom of the screen during this first half hour so you can begin uh, thinking about your questions and calling into our studio studios here in Washington. 
Washington, and we do very much welcome your participation. Lots of opportunity for discussions of all sorts. When did you decide that writing would be your career? I don't think I ever decided that. I wanted to uh, go into politics. That was the family's trade. And um, I sort of aimed more toward that, but that made something of a historian out of me because I kept studying the issues as I went along. My grandfather was born in 1870. So between his life and my life, we've covered half that of the Republic, and he had memories of as far back as the Revolution from a great-grandfather of his. So I... It was natural for me to write, as natural as it was for me to read. Uh, I had no clear idea. I was a, very much a poet, and a very bad poet very didactic and thundering. But in my back of my mind, I, it just the need to invent worlds was obviously pretty great. So I became a writer in the um, army. I was in the Pacific during the war. I enlisted at the age of 17 in the year 1943 and ended up as a first mate of an army boat in the Aleutian Islands where I got soaked one day by a wave from the Bering Sea hypothermia, is that the word for it? Anyway, I came out of it with rheumatoid arthritis In the army hospital I began to write needless to say about the first mate of an army boat in the Aleutian Islands uh, I was in the traditional mode, write about what you know. I was by then 18 or 19. And as usual, I tried to write, when I was at Exeter, at least six novels. And some of them I got very far along. And then just I could never finish anything. So here I was, writing this narrative about the illusions, the experience of a great storm which is called Willowaw in the Aleut language. And what it was like to be all of those men, I think it was a 20-man crew, in this forlorn lunar landscape with these dangerous seas and extraordinary beaches. The beaches up in the Aleutians are covered with moonstone and jasper and all sorts of precious stones no indigenous wildlife except for foxes and great black ravens and a lot, lot, lot of guys went crazy up there really in, in the Quonset huts because you never saw the sun and I didn't go crazy because I had, I had a book to, I had a story to tell in the army hospital I didn't get much done then they made me a mess officer and Camp Gordon Johnson in Apalachicola, Florida, Transportation Corps. And uh, that was kind of fun. They wouldn't let me out. I, I could have had a medical discharge, but they said, we'll keep you in two more years because you can still do work like this. And one night, I went to see a movie called Isle of the Dead with Boris Karloff. And it was an, not as a monster, but as a Greek colonel on an island in which there is a, a kind of mad spirit abroad 
It's a wonderful picture. And after I saw the picture, I went, I was officer of the day, which meant I was on duty at night, in the headquarters. And I went back in this great headquarters. They had all the lights on. I don't remember why. And there were rows of typewriters. And I went over and started typing, and within a week I had finished Willow War, my first book that I had ever completed. In due course, after three years of the Army, I was let out in 46, gave it to a publisher, and it was published. Not just that it was complete, but did you know that in fact it was good? I thought I had accomplished what I had set out to do, yes. Naturally, I was compared to Hemingway. Everybody was compared to Hemingway in those days, if you wrote in a sort of abbreviated, terse style. But the reading I had been doing that uh, influenced me, if anything did, other than my imaginary world and the real world I'm describing, it would have been Hart Crane's The Boat, which I've never seen. I, I finally met somebody who had noticed that. I was being interviewed in New York, and uh, the interviewer said, you know, I got my master's degree in college in your book, Willowaw. I said, tell me about it. And he did, because I've totally forgotten it. And he said, reread it, so maybe I will. But not on air. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at your relationship with Senator Gore, um, do you think that was the formative relationship in your life? Oh, yes. Uh, aside from a passion for politics, which seems to be in the bloodstream of most gores, as we are witnessing this year, uh, he gave me a profound sense of history from the loser's side. He was from Mississippi. And the gores come from northern Mississippi, and Albert Gore's family comes from Tennessee, just across the border from us. It's all the same family. And um, we were unionists. There were no slaves up there. And we didn't want to secede. And eastern Tennessee did not secede, but all of Mississippi did. And my great-grandfather, Senator Gore's father, enlisted with two brothers. And in due course, he was uh, wounded at Chickamauga and taken captive. And one of his other brothers was, was killed. So my grandfather was then his son. He became county clerk. Well, my grandfather was just able to tell me about the Civil War, what it was like, what the Yankees did when they came and burned the town. And with that history and that politics, a writer's subject was born, if not a writer. Would you describe your politics? Well, I wouldn't have written so many books if I could describe it in one sentence, would I? <laughs> I come out of the populist tradition, which was his tradition. Populist means people, and we, there was something called the Party of the People at the end of the 19th century. One of the principal organizers in that area was my great-grandfather, Gore. And all the Gores were political, and many of them great orators. Well, it was a party to represent, first, the people who had been ruined by the Civil War, the Southerners, just ruined farmers, and uh, 
the bourbons of the southern, as they call the aristocrats of the southern Mississippi. They had lost plantations and so on, but somehow they held on to money. We had nothing up in the north. So in order to organize against Reconstruction, the, the bad aspects of it, and the hard, cold hand of the banks in the north who were buying up the south and exploiting and keeping cotton at five cents or whatever it was, playing around with, the, with our crops and money, we became violently anti-big banks, what we call corporate America today. That was, that, those were the villains. And he continued along that line. In due course, the populists were co-opted by the Democratic Party. And William Jennings Bryan, three times candidate for president, was the heroic leader of the party. My grandfather nominated him for president in 1907, or eight, I guess it was, at Denver. And he remembered Bryan was about 36 when he was first nominated. Sort of a windbag, but a marvelous orator. And but my grandfather said, the thing about Brian is he never developed. After he made his cross of gold, you shall not press down upon the bow of, brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. The gores naturally were free silver, which was what bimetallism was all about. My grandfather started the longest demonstration in the history of any convention when he nominated Brian. How and long it, was it, do you know? I think it was about two hours. A two-hour demonstration? Yeah. And uh, they prayed it up and down. The place went crazy. Cause, and he was speaking as the new senator of a new state, which he'd helped to create, Oklahoma. And so he was a great novel, and he was a great orator. He said as they were driving away from the convention... It wasn't that convention. It was the next time Brian was nominated. If Brian ran and lost, I guess it was the next time. As they were driving away in their carriage from the convention hall, Brian said, You know, I attribute my success in politics to just three things. My grandfather said, I can't remember anything he said. But I do remember thinking why he thought he was a success. <laughs> About 15 minutes until we begin your phone calls for Gore Vidal. <clears throat> and here are the numbers. If you live in the eastern half of the United States, 202-624-1111. If you live in the Mountain or Pacific time zones, 202-624-1115. I was surprised in my reading to learn that, in fact, Gore was not your birth name, that you took it as a writer. That's not true. That's not true. I was christened by the canon Albert Hawley Lucas headmaster of St. Albans, where I was in school. <laughs> I was christened uh, Eugene Luther Gore Vidal. So you chose to emphasize? No. It's too long. <laughs> you can't use that as a writer's name. I was going to go into politics in the state of New Mexico and was making certain preparations for it when I was in my 20s. And I just cut the Eugene Luther off. After all, my father was Gene, and I didn't want to be another Gene, fond as I was of him. And Luther just doesn't work, so we kept to Gore Vidal. I did have in the back of my mind that if I were to run for office, he was a great power in that section in the Southwest. And a friend of his, in fact, we used to talk about that in... Um, 
48. I'd been out of the Army two years, published my first two books. I would go to New Mexico, Santa Fe, settle in. The governor was a, a protege of my grandfather's. Jack Dempsey was his name. And uh, I would settle in and become a politician. And Vidal is a Latin name, which is a help with uh, the uh, Hispanic vote. Although our, my family was Italian. but So that is how I got the name, or gave myself the name by cutting it off the first two, two words. What is your specific relationship to Al Gore? Well, we've never met, but I knew his father. <laughs> I love it now. Every time I'm on a program or whatever, a distant cousin of Albert Gore. Well, we're not distant at all. I, I have not wanted to meet him because it doesn't do you much good if you're a political commentator to be thought to be involved with the president. I discovered that during Jack Kennedy's reign when suddenly I was not taken seriously at all, having been taken quite seriously as a commentator, uh, because uh, they thought that I was an apologist for him. And that was because it was irresistible not to make fun of Richard Nixon. So it seemed as though I was partisan when I wasn't. But I figured out then it does no good to be attached in any way to a political figure if you want to talk about politics, which I tend to do. So I, had, I knew uh, young Albert was going to make himself president if he could. And though I liked his father, and his father and my grandfather were friends. We're all here in Washington. I mean, you can't say distant cousins. We're all... I, last last night, I had a wonderful dinner with Deborah Gordine, another cousin. And she's the, she's the granddaughter of uh, Grady Gore. So there's Grady Gore here in the town with the Fairfax Hotel. He's the rich member of the family. There's Albert Gore from uh, eastern Tennessee, who comes here in the House and then goes on to the Senate. And there's Thomas Pryor Gore from Mississippi, but senator from Oklahoma. Well, all three cousins are here in the town, and they all three knew each other. I'm talking the older generation. So uh, it's a, there's a saying in Mississippi, if a snake bites a gore, they all puff up. <laughs> You know, you mentioned Deborah Gordine, your your cousin. People who uh, follow politics closely will remember that she had uh, some troubles during the Reagan administration. Huh. Well, I would think that she was young, she was foolish, she, went to, she wanted to work for Ronald Reagan. That that's, that's trouble enough. And uh, The acting she, president. Has she, in fact, disavowed herself from public life after that experience? We haven't talked about public life. She's a wonderful decorator. A decorator now. Oh, she has her over in Georgetown. Got a wonderful uh, shop there. Well, speaking of public life, you talked about your aspirations to politics. You ran twice. Would you talk about those two bids and what happened? Well, the first... Uh, oh, I, I, I like to read about my humiliating defeats. This is a right-wing specialty. Uh, I doubled the vote in 1960 for Congress from upstate New York. The 29th Congressional District, which is five counties, very big district. And in fact, did Harry Truman come up to introduce you during an event there? Came up to speak for me, yes. I introduced him. And uh, 
1959, I'd written a play called The Best Man. And I gave it to Jack Kennedy to read. As he was running for president. I was running for the House. And your eye, con your eye contact is gone. It's because I'm showing the audience the best man flyer, which has just been... Oh, really? Uh -huh. As you see. Everything is behind me on this program. What is going on upstage there? I feel <laughs> that there's a whole way of life. Gladiators are fighting while I'm downstage. Talking. Would that it were that interesting. <laughs> oh, come now. We'll do our best to enliven it downstage here. Well, in fact, I've interrupted you right at the best man being written, 1959. Yes. You want to pick it up from there? So, I am running for Congress. Jack is running for president. Uh, the best man, which is once again on Broadway, the Virginia Theater in New Manhattan. This was, in a sense, a study of uh, presidential character. It's a character somewhat like Adlai Stevenson, some, something like Truman, something like... Uh, Nixon and it was written really sort of to help out Jack because he had to t Nixon would be his opponent if he got the nomination and it was very very important that he get knock off Adlai Stevenson who had had two runs and we of the liberal end of the Democratic Party were all Stevensonians and suddenly Jack is the insurgent but after two runs, we thought that Adlai Stevenson was uh, just not up to it. He was a very cultivated, charming man, wonderful speech maker. But he was not um, decisive. And his great backer was Eleanor Roosevelt, who was my neighbor on the Hudson. And she, she adored him. And she, she wanted the party to support him. And she didn't like Jack Kennedy one bit. First, he was a McCarthyite in her eyes. He was very friendly with Joe McCarthy. And, of course, she detested his father, which is, shouldn't have held over with him, but it did. And I remember Jack sent her son, Frank Roosevelt Jr., Walter Ruther, who was head of the United Auto Workers, and me to pay a call on her at Val Kill Cottage to get her to support Adley. I was so about Jack. And she read a position paper to us, which was my day for, for the next week and they said yes but she, he won't make up his mind you keep proposing him and he keeps he, he saying uh, you know no I'm, I don't know if I'm running or not well she said finally uh, Frank Roosevelt said you know Ma we don't want uh, you can't have somebody who, who doesn't know his own mind she said well that's the way he is you can't change people. And he said, well, we know that's the way he is, and we don't want him. And with that, she went right on to to support. Adlai Stevenson went to the convention, waved her finger at us, said, you must support this man. I'm losing my thing in my ear. That's, uh, tell the audience, that's how you're going to hear phone calls in this about five minutes. This is how I hear the phone calls, which I'm sure are a lot out there now. So I practically hear a phone call now. <laughs> They're lined up for you, I can promise. Right. And in fact, how is the presidency different today as you re-release this play from the kind of presidency you captured in it in 1960 in the Jack Kennedy era? Well, it certainly makes a monkey out of Darwin. <laughs> There's been no evolution in 40 years. The audience recognizes these types. My characters, they sit there. It's a, sort of a thriller and it's quite funny. 
uh, people don't know. They've forgotten about realism. Life is not always tragic and it's not always comic. It's a sort of mixture, and that is what realism was. Now everybody thinks, oh, a serious play has got to be lugubrious and a comedy has got to be, you know, pratfalls. Uh, real life is mixed, and it's, it is a realistic play, and it's, the audiences pick up on just about... I haven't changed a word since 1960, so... It's like the time machine for them. They're walking into a 1960 uh, meeting in which uh, you watch over a three-day period of this convention, uh, who's, two, two men fighting it out with an old president being the decisive voice. And they ask a lot of questions. They compare it to today when a convention means nothing because by March... Of 2000, we knew who the two candidates were, and you don't get the convention until June or July. So uh, it's, it's quite different. Also, we don't talk about money in the play. There's no hard money, soft money, no electoral reform. So I, more issues are probably touched upon delicately, amusingly, wittily in the play than have been in this entire campaign as we sit here in Washington, D.C., with presidential candidates uh, roaming the country. First telephone call for you is from Philadelphia. Welcome to the program, and you're on for Gore Vidal. Yes, hello, Mr. Vidal. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm honored to speak with you. I met James Baldwin on your birthday the year before he died, and I told him it was your birthday, and he said he didn't know, and he didn't say anything about the fact that you all knew each other until I read your memoir. I realized that you did know each other, so I was wondering if you two ever talk politics, and if so, how did you find him, and if not, uh, how did you find Mr. Baldwin generally? Well, I liked Jimmy, and I worked the year my first book, Willow Walk, came out, 1946. E.P. Dutton, the publisher, gave me a job as, uh, as, as a reader, and I brought them Cry Holy, a book by J Jimmy Baldwin which later became Go Tell It on the Mountain. The head of E.P. Dutton, Mr. McRae, just took, when he found out the author was black, said, but don't you understand, I'm from Virginia. And I said, well, what's that got to do with it? Well, he turned it down on the grounds that he was not going to publish a black author. First time I'd ever seen it that close. Jimmy went on, however, to publish elsewhere and did very well. Uh... Relations with Jimmy himself were always kind of edgy. He was, um, well, he had a lot of problems. On the one hand, he was a, a wonderful sort of uh, orator and a great sermonizer. On the other hand, he was just in love with showbiz. So he, he would go from Martin Luther King on one day to Betty Davis on the next day. Well, it was very odd dealing with such a mercurial character. But I thought he, um, he was a great voice in his time, but I'm not so sure the novels will be remembered. I was looking at one of them the other day, and it seemed very uh, sort of showbiz novels that he wrote. But uh, the sermons still hold up. Next call for you comes from a town that's been in the news quite a bit lately, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. First off, I want to say when you began this uh, series, uh, I was always hoping you would have Gore Vidal for three hours. And Mr. Vidal, uh, you mentioned Isle of the Dead earlier, which is one of my favorite movies. And the book I particularly enjoyed of yours was Screening History. 
In your opening line, you say, as I now move graciously, I hope, toward the door parked exit, it occurs to me that the only thing I ever really liked to do was go to the movies. And my sentiments exactly. So my question for you, Mr. Badal, which it's a great honor to speak to you, is have you seen any good movies lately? <laughs> I keep seeing them and I keep forgetting their names. Uh, there was a good Altman movie. I'm, I'm a member of the Academy, so I vote on the Oscars. And so I get, I get to see everything. But there's a very good Altman movie last year, which had the word cookie in the title. Uh, the ones I like are seldom, are seldom very successful. But I, I think we, we've got a lot of interesting movie makers now. I like the Coen brothers. I like Tim Robbins. I worked as an actor with Tim Robbins and Bob Roberts. I think it's a good political movie. And I went to Los Alamos when it was a boys' school. I was there 39 to 40. And up there on the Mesa, which has now been burnt a bit, and a kind of awful place. And ten years before I got there, there was another writer-to-be, William Burroughs. So Los Alamos produced Burroughs and Vidal. I don't know what that means. If you had some free time right now, would you choose to read or go to the movies? I do both. Because uh, I, as a member of the Academy, I get everything practically on video cassette. So I play that, and I'm reading all the time as well. So there isn't much time to do anything but look and read. Before we take the next call, can we talk a little bit about home? When did you choose Italy as your, your major place of residence? I don't know it's a major. I mean, I spent all last winter. I have a house in Los Angeles, in the Hollywood Hills. And I make the tired joke, you know, arguably between Hollywood and Ravello, Italy, you can say I don't live in America at all. But uh, as America is in my head and as America is my subject, and wherever I am, there is America. I sometimes think I've limited myself in a way by being so intensely interested in the country and in its politics and in the design of its history, which is what these... And I never called it American Chronicle. That was the publishers. I call them narratives of empire from Burr to Lincoln to 1876 right up to the, the Golden Age. What I'm doing is trying to find a design in our history. I'm trying to find... How deliberate was the acquisition of empire? Was there a plan? Or were there many similar plans that coalesced into this global empire that is causing the world so much trouble and is so expensive for us to maintain? And I think toward the end of Palimpsest, I just saw the book Palimpsest and I say the title, of the Golden Age, I begin to draw a pattern. Italy is a place just to go to to write, and the Hollywood Hills is a place to, when I'm living in America, from which I politic and sometimes do the odd movie. If we were to find you in Ravello writing, where exactly would you be? Well, I'd be in my studio in a villa, which is about 700 meters above the sea, it's on a cliff with a spectacular view of the Gulf of Salerno in front of me. And then right across the Gulf is Paestum, 
the Greek temples from the 5th century on a clear day. You think you can see them, but I don't think we do see them. And I would be there, sitting in a cube room, cube-like room, painted white, writing uh, in longhand on yellow legal sheets. No computer? No computer. How do you revise? <laughs> I have it typed up. I fax it to London, where I have a typist. She faxes it back to me. She's got a floppy disk, and I do another version. I do generally about five or six versions of everything. Sometimes I try to cheat and stop at four, and it's not right. So that is the work process. When do you do your best work? Are you a morning person? When I get up, which might not be morning, but... Uh, I find that not only the closer you are to the dream state that you've been in before awakening, the much readier the imagination is, <clears throat> not to mention memory. With age, you begin to start to forget names and numbers and so on. I find that if I've got a problem, and I can't think of something, and if I just put it on hold... In the morning, it comes to me. I have the name that I was looking for, or the book that I'm trying to find. Graham Greene said something, the same thing. He used to have a house on Anna Capri. Capri is just up the coast from us. And uh, he said that uh, any problem he had was always solved the next morning when he got out. Of course, I regarded Graham as a wonderful man and... Uh, sometimes a good writer but uh, what we call an easy settler in the movie business that means somebody who does a first draft and, okay that's it it's perfect Huntsville Alabama you're on for Gore Vidal Mr. Vidal it's it's an honor to talk to you Thanks. sir can um, I can I stop you for a second you're having a little bit of feedback because your television's up too high and that's what's causing the problem for you turn it down and then go ahead with your question I, always hope I know you went to one away. of the most exclusive prep schools in the U.S., but to what do you, you attribute your brilliance? I'd like some pointers on how you could write a book as brilliant as The Judgment of Paris. Well, it certainly had nothing to do with any school I ever went to. I went to St. Albans here and Exeter up in New Hampshire. I have never been so bored in my life. I had one or two good teachers at both places. But the courses, I mean, the boredom that they inflicted. This is the period where you had to learn by rote, memorize, memorize. I remember innocently when I got to Exeter, I said, so when are we going to get to the Roman Empire? We don't get to the Roman Empire. You'll be translating Julius Caesar. That's all we do. They taught nothing of interest to me. And my marks were very bad. And I barely passed what they call then the college board exams. But instead, at 17, I enlisted in the army. I never went back to school. I was supposed to go to Harvard. I came back. I did go to Harvard after my first book came out to lecture. And there in the audience were at least ten boys that I had been to Exeter, been with at Exeter, who were very old undergraduates, having just come out of the war, veterans. And that was a triumphal moment, you know, that I had gone my own way, not gone to university. If I am in any way brilliant or if I am in any way learned,
perhaps a better word. I was in the habit of reading all my life with a man who was part of history and a historian as well. And I was immersed in uh, literature and in history. And I never stopped reading. And I'm always trying to find out things. I wanted to know everything when I was a kid. I remember I used to make charts. The history of the world, and they, they now do them, but they didn't exist then, in which in the first century you'd find out what they were doing in Egypt, what they were doing in China, what they were doing in uh, North America. Comparative history. And I just thought that up myself. I'd make these enormous charts and, and fill in the various centuries. I think, well, I am what they call an autodidact. Uh, I taught myself. And as somebody said to me in Oregon recently, when I was after speech, autodidacts have gone to the wrong school, said this guy from Harvard. I said, well, let others be the judge. Next is the call from Seattle. Hi. Um, I, in, uh, in 1971, you wrote an article that was a cover story for Esquire magazine. And and it supported Ralph Nader for president. Right. And I was wondering if you were a supporter of his current campaign. Uh, no. Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon are great friends of mine, and we just had dinner together. They're supporting Nader, and many of my friends are. Obviously, the idea is that he is a virtuous figure and is not, not going to be elected, but he might, through his candidacy this year, set up a Green Party, which would be useful in future years. Well, that's the third party route. I've done that. And uh, with Dr. Spock, the People's Party, in 1968-70, I don't see any future in that. We've, we've got one political party, which is Corporate America's, possession, and it has two right wings, Democratic Party, Democratic wing, Republican wing. I'm really interested in, not in a third party, but in getting us a second party, as they got back in 1856, when uh, all the splits started and the Republican Party was invented and did a great job for the United States. So I'm, I'm for that, really, rather than uh, a third, fourth, fifth Buchanan party, or this party, a Nader party. And then when asked the question by the press, I said, well, at the end of the day, I think Gore is thicker than Nader. When you mention your current thinking uh, or that America is essentially corporate America, you mentioned earlier that this is a theme that runs throughout the series. In fact, has it always been a situation of the powerful interests versus the people? Yes. And it is really the essential conflict in American life. And it's the real party system, no matter what the official parties are. There is the line of Jefferson and there is the line of Hamilton. Hamilton was for big industry, banking, national bank, world trade, forcing ourselves upon other people if necessary. Jefferson was the mind your own business, more agricultural life, more bucolic, and most Americans are Jeffersonians. Uh, only the bankers, at least at the time of World War I, World War II, were interventionist. 
Americans do not want to go abroad to be killed in other countries, sometimes countries they've never heard of before. You asked me earlier about my, my politics. Well, it is anti-imperialist. And I'm certainly I'm not anti-banking. That would be flat-earth politics. We must have that, but it must be kept in balance. And our problem is that they, uh, they are the masters. And they have bought the politicians. Just look at this year. It's going to be a billion dollars, half a billion anyway, paid on this election. An election that nobody's going to bother with if they can help it because they're not interested. The candidates, whether they are intelligent, like my cousin Albert, or if they are somewhat disturbed or disturbing, like his opponent, uh, basically don't differ much and have nothing to say because the people who give them the money to run don't want them to address real issues. What is a real issue? There's only one thing to talk about in the year 2000. And that is, for 50 years, we have been a militarized economy, a garrison state. We've spent over $7 trillion since 1949 on war. That is the theme of my American Chronicle, as it is called. Uh, how the people, on the one hand, are left behind and are exploited in the early days by eastern banks now it's of course it's, it's the great corporations that own the country by the politicians the corruption is total now when corruption is systemic you can't say well Bush is, is corrupt or Gore is corrupt or this one or that one the whole system is corrupt the whole means of raising money well this starting out with Burr you see the fight my first novel in that series you see the fight going on between Burr and Jefferson on these very issues and the fight, particularly Hamilton and these two men, Hamilton and Jefferson defined American life Jefferson is with the people the, Hamilton is with the Aristos or the great business magnates and this is a struggle except the Hamiltonians have won now what you should talk about is why 51% of our budget 1999 went for war, went to the Pentagon they're now demanding $30 billion a year, more over the next decade. Now we're getting away from books. I'm going to give a political speech. You told me before the program started that you just spent some time calculating how much money this country has allocated to weaponry. Yes, sir. Over what period and what's the number? I just gave it to you. I, just this instant you yeah. gave it to me? I apologize. Say it again. $7.1 trillion has gone for war since 1949 okay. and we have had no enemy except the ones we selected as far as I know the Viet Cong never attacked us we attacked them in the interest of corporate America there were a lot of ties between great corporations and South Vietnam we interfered in their civil war and in their affairs and we have suffered greatly same thing with Korea. It was 49 was when the big build-up started. Harry Truman put in peacetime drafting, enormous amount of money for the military, and uh, it was so. It was all quite deliberate. He used uh, the fact that Greece and Turkey, this is about 1950, might fall to the Russian bear because England had been protecting Greece and England was broke. We must take their place. And he, he and Dean Acheson, who was 
This is all in the golden age, so those interested in the subject may turn to that. But they got together and decided to make a real issue that the Russians were coming, the Russians were coming. Communism was a great danger to the United States. Well, communism was a great danger to the Russians and to the people, their satellite states. They were no danger to us. But officially, the good reason for the build-up was Truman and Atchison were afraid we'd fall back into the Depression. We didn't get out of the Depression until 1940 when we started to arm to go to war against Hitler and uh, Japan struck at us. That ended the Depression. Now they're beginning to see dicey times coming. They love General Motors. They said, what's good for General Motors is good for the country, said the chairman of the board. And that meant war. It's been nothing but war ever since. One historian put it very nicely in one phrase. Our policy is perpetual war for perpetual peace. And that is insanity. That is why we have the worst public educational system uh, in the first world. That's why we have no health care for the people. The people get nothing back for their tax money. This is a populist line that you're hearing from me, and that is the theme of many of my books. We get nothing back except all this armament. And lately, if you've been reading the papers, the chiefs of, of the various services are demanding more and more money because it's all deteriorating. And there is no enemy. We create enemies. We blow up an aspirin factory in the Sudan. Well, if the Sudanese had any power, they'd probably blow up a factory here. But they don't, and they won't. And we go right on. We are the number one terrorist on Earth. And now, you, and through my series of seven books, you see this evolution and how the American people were left out. Decisions were made over their heads by the equivalent of corporate America back in the 18th century and that nowadays. We have no redress because we have no representative government. One senator, if you remember Scoop Jackson, was known as the senator from Boeing, not the senator from Washington. That's what happened to us. So if we were to have a real election, we'd be discussing what I've just been discussing. Our next caller, who is from Pittsburgh, has a question about Burr, the first in that Good. series. Go ahead, right. please. Uh, it's a great pleasure talking to you, uh, Mr. You. Burr. I've read about a half a dozen of your books, and they've all brought me great pleasure in entertainment and, and, and information. Um, about Burr, uh, I, I've drawn a, a parallel, if you will. Um, in school, I had learned that uh, in about the ninth grade, I learned that... Um, now, Burr had killed Alexander Hamilton when he was vice president, and Alexander Hamilton was secretary of the treasury. But they never told us why. And I didn't <laughs> find out why until I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do ne neglect these details. <laughs> right. And, uh, um, and, it's, and I, I've correlated. I figured that, and I says, well, like 200 years later, we're still doing the same thing. Uh, what would happen, of course, President Clinton brought that, that mess on himself, but uh, you had uh, some people behind the scenes um, putting pamphlets out about you know, his, his activities, which is why uh, Burr shot uh, Hamilton. He had uh, instigated a pamphlet about him. Yes. Uh, uh, one more thing. Uh, uh, Live from Golgotha, which is another one of my... Uh, Another one of your favorite books that I like. Uh, at the end of it, there's a Japanese uh, uh, script, and could you 
give me a hint as to what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, is, well, we're giving away the plot of Life from Golgotha, but uh, uh, NBC has gone back to Calvary. to they, they can get through a time warp to film the crucifixion. And suddenly there's been a takeover, corporate takeover of NBC and of most media in America by the Japanese. And so at the very end, instead of uh, the agony and the passion of Jesus, you see the Japanese goddess, the mother goddess of the world, suddenly appears on the screen. And the entire past is being changed. And there will be no more Jesus, only the Japanese mother goddess. So the book ends with two pages of Japanese celebrating her virtue and the fact she's all-powerful. Have any further comments for him on Burr? On Burr. Well, the allegations that uh, that I figured out but did not, I, usually, I, I, I don't make reckless guesses about what people did and didn't do if I don't have something to go on. Burr read in the papers that Hamilton, who was uh, a defeated politician at this point, but still making a lot of trouble, had written a friend saying, there is something I can tell you about Colonel Burr's character, uh, which is of such a despicable nature that I can only confide it to you in private. I'm paraphrasing the letter. Well, I thought, and I thought, and I thought, what on earth could it be? Burr had the hide of an elephant. He was the coolest man of his time, and one of the brightest. The only thing, the love of his life was his daughter Theodosia, his only, only legitimate child. And he had brought her up. He was a, probably the first feminist in the United States. He said women have the same minds as men if they are educated like men. So he educated her personally as, as if she were a son. She became a brilliant woman, and, and he was so close to her that they were like buddies. And his letters, which finally got printed but were known about before, to her, are the letters of, of two young men writing each other. I mean, he writes about all of his sex life in Paris in some detail. And uh, he treats her as a son. He thought of himself as Lord Chesterfield writing to his son. His closeness to Theodosia was known to everybody, and I intuited that Hamilton had said something about incest. Hamilton would. Hamilton was reckless and ran off at the mouth. Nothing else would have led Burr, Vice President of the United States, to call out Hamilton in a duel and shoot and kill him at Weehawken. Well, there was a lot of outcry when I wrote this. And I, I made a note. I said, I am making a guess here. But nobody else has come up with anything. The current, there are two books out now about that period. And one by a Professor Fogelson, I forget his name, acknowledges that he, th he, he too thinks that, that what is what happened. And he's got some evidence in this latest biography of Burr. So here we are, some 30 years later, and the official historians are acknowledging that my intuition was probably correct. Can we spend a minute talking about the entirety of the series? When you began it, had you plotted out what you wanted to do, which figures you were going to address? No. 
it, it just it just ambled along. I, the first one to be written was actually the last one till now was Washington D.C. That was written in '67, and it covered the period of uh, of Roosevelt's ad- administration. But I kept Roosevelt and so on in the background, and uh, my fictional characters were very much in the foreground. It was the '30s and into up to Eisenhower to about 54. That was 67, and then I decided, I started to brood about it, and I thought, first of all, I was teaching myself a lot of American history, and I got interested, well, how what, how did Roosevelt pull it off? How did he get us into the Second World War? We all knew that he'd manipulated the Japanese into attacking us, but how and why? And then what what, what was there abroad in the land, what mechanism what, that he could touch to create opinion, as David Hume would say, that would convince the people that this war was a just war. Hitler, of course, was a, was a great monster, but it's not necessary for us. It's a great line of John Quincy Adams. He says, the United States, 1820, the United States does not go forth to destroy monsters. Yes, she could become dictatress of the world, but in the process, she would lose her own soul. You ask me what my politics is. That is pure populism, coming from a New England uh, federalist, but of like mind. We have enough to do perfecting our society without going forth to slay monsters. That was pretty much um, the trigger, thinking about how Roosevelt got to be Roosevelt and we got possession of the world. So I went back, I said, I think I'll go back to the beginning. So I go back to the revolution and the most attractive figure to me is Aaron Burr, who was also a relative of my stepfather. And um, I'd always known that he had a bum rap from the family, but I didn't know who or what he was. And whoever it was, one of, our, one of your callers said, you know, what a mess they make of American history in school. They fought a, bur- a, a duel, but you don't know why. Nor would they try to guess. So I go back to the Revolution, I go back to Washington and Hamilton, Jefferson, Burr, and he has a very sardonic style and eye, and I use a lot of his own writings. Then I move on to our great tragic period and president, uh, Lincoln, and I'm able to bring in it a great deal of what it felt like to be on the loser's side. That's why the South, I think, has produced so many interesting writers. Once you've lost a war, uh, pain has has a great resonance for you. Then I go on to 1876, which is the centennial of the country, and we are once again steeped in corruption. The Democrat, Governor Tilden of New York, wins the election by, I think, 200,000 votes, popular vote. The Republicans, who are still in some of the southern states and in the far west, in control of legislatures, reverse the election. And Rutherford B. Hayes, who lost it, becomes a Republican president. Rutherford B. Fraud, he was known as. That's 1876, and you get a sense then of the centennial. From there we go on to Empire, which shows the plan being made by Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, 
uh, Brooks Adams, brother of Henry Adams, a brilliant geopolitician, uh, to create an admiral man who had the, the theories about sea power. We deliberately picked a war with Spain, which was a very weak but imperial power. We defeated Spain. We grabbed Cuba. We grabbed Puerto Rico. Best of all, we got the Philippines right off the coast of Asia. That makes us a Pacific power, which was the dream of, theater, of the imperialists, the jingos. What am I politically? I'm opposed to them. Uh, out of that came the first big armaments that we had done since the Civil War, the great white fleet of Theodore Roosevelt. Then we got, the, meanwhile, we got the Hawaiian Islands, and we were a great power in the Pacific, and we were looking hungrily at the mainland of Asia. Brooks Adams, one of the four conspirators, uh, said, he who possesses Shanxi province possesses the world. Where is Shanxi province? Well, it's up in northeast China and Manchuria. And it, it was then the richest piece of territory on earth. It had iron, it had coal. It was very, very rich for the kind of technology that they needed then. The Japanese had their eye on it. The United States had their eye on it. Germany was even beginning to come and, you know, slither around in the neighborhood. So that is empire. We are now launched as, as a military power. We had promised the Filipinos that we would liberate them from Spain and they could organize their own government. Once we saw the value of the possession of the Philippines, we went back on it and we refused to remove ourselves and we took over the government of the Philippines. That caused a civil war in which something like 100,000 Filipinos were killed, men, women, and children. We went slaughtering. Not long after, a major general with the charge of the Marine Corps called Smedley Butler wrote a book. And he, he was commandant during the early part of the century, 1920s up to the 1930s. And he said, I was essentially an enforcer for the banks as commander of the Marine Corps. He said, I was making Nicaragua safe for Standard Oil. I was making Shanghai, we, we invaded Shanghai, safe for City National Bank or whatever the bank was called then. And he named all of the great uh, entities, commercial entities that he was working for even though he was the United States government. And he said, I was the hitman. I was the enforcer for these banks and these corporations. He said, you know, I operated in three continents. Al Capone only had three Chicago districts. This is not in the history books, and that's why I write these books, to remind people through a form of a novel what was actually said and done and what has been suppressed. Next call for you is from Buffalo. Buffalo, you're on the air. Let's try Buffalo again. All right, I think we might have lost them. Um, the last in the series before the Golden Age, Hollywood? Hollywood. Uh, somebody asked me, what is it about? I said, well, Hollywood is about uh, Woodrow Wilson and Warren G. Harding. Their presidencies I study, but I also there's a great deal about the silent days of the movies. One of the figures that runs through the last two or three novels is William Randolph Hearst, who's a very important figure. Not only did he invent T 
tabloid journalism. But if there was no news, he would invent it. Which then puts the whole question, what is history, on the table. If the historian goes back to old newspapers to reconstruct uh, an administration, and that's been faked, how's he to know? What is history? And the, at the very end of the Golden Age, there's a whole meditation on the nature of history. Is anything real? So, with Empire, uh, with uh, Hollywood, what I'm doing is I show the silent days of the movies, with all of Chaplin and so on. It's kind of fun. But you also see the influence of, uh, first, of government, Woodrow Wilson on Hollywood at the time of the First World War. He sent a guy called George Creel out there, and George Creel... Uh, was to organize propaganda movies, the Huns from Hell, stuff like that. And they did a lot of propaganda. Wilson appeared in at least two movies as himself, you know, with great sententious thoughts. And suddenly Washington realized the importance of Hollywood. And Hollywood realized that Washington was a very interesting partner. They talked today about Hollywood and, you know, as though this was something new and bizarre. Well, it's been going on since 1914, that symbiosis. Then I go into Woodrow Wilson, the First War, the disaster of the League of Nations, and Warren Harding, who was probably our nicest president. He really was a very good man, surrounded by very corrupt people. Next call, Yonkers, New York. Yes, hello, thanks for having me on the air. Uh, I wanted to ask Mr. Vidal if you could talk a little bit about the actual process that you uh, have to turn materials that you've acquired in your historical novels uh, in and transform them into a narrative form, uh, the actual process by which you compile the, uh, the, uh, the bulk of the research material that you gather and uh, transform and, you know, put it into a creative uh, narrative form. Uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of reading, and um, I read, you know, I'll read 100, 200, 300 books sometimes before I will start. I have to own the book so I can write in the margins. And uh, as you read, you begin to see relationships between people. That helps you with your characters then you begin to find things that have been omitted in the official histories and you begin to wonder why why has it been left out why has General Smedley Butler forgotten when he made such a startling uh, gave such a startling world view of our activities it's a matter of lo taking a lot of notes I was helped in this series because I'm working with one family so I know them and, I, and now I start with one generation, second generation, third generation. I think I've got four generations in there. Uh, so I, I'm at home with the family. I know, I don't, uh, and they are the fictional ones. The real ones are all interrelated, which is a curious thing that I found doing American history. That it's a very small deck of cards that governs the United States. Occasionally, a new card is added, and and some old cards are thrown out, but. It's always pretty limited, the players. And you see how from administration to administration, there they are for the first 40 years of our history, 50 years. It was pretty much Virginians, all of whom knew each other. 
except for the two Adamses who came in and each got to heave ho from the Virginians. They didn't want anybody from Boston in the White House. Uh, you begin to see these patterns. And, of course, the reading, I mean, I have the luxury of taking all the best stuff from other historians. I just lift it and transform it. And then I put my fictional characters together with the real people. And it's not, and it's, the reason for the fictional characters is that they can observe and have opinions, which I as author must not, and I can't pretend uh, that I know what goes on in Abraham Lincoln's mind, but I can tell you uh, what one of my invented characters thinks of him. And if there's a contradiction in Lincoln, I can have another invented character. No, 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 I don't think that's what he meant at all. So this gives me the luxury to comment on what I'm doing. And then the historical novel, as I practice it, is essentially, uh, it's history. It's like, the, it's like a libretto. And the fictional characters are the music. So you might say, in a sense, these are sort of operas, that uh, the music starts, and these are the fictional characters. And then we go through the familiar story, Abraham Lincoln goes to Ford's Theater. And we know the plot, as we always know the plot of uh, Julius Caesar or Aida. And uh, then we have the fictional characters observing what happens with pity or with awe. When you speak of the small deck of cards, in fact, you are an example of the interconnectedness of the power oh. in America. Oh, my heavens, yes. Well, a lot of that is, of course, my mother's family, the Gores, were Anglo-Irish from uh, County Donegal who came over in the 17th century. Well, those of us in the South who came from the British Isles in the 17th, 18th centuries, I think we're all related. There are so few of us, you know, we intermarried. Not only, I've, I've, never, I've never said it until now, I don't think, that in addition to the Gore family and my cousinage with Albert Jr., Oh, God, I tremble to think that I'm going to say this. I get a lot of mail, you know, f from people who are relatives, particularly from the South, because they know everybody's connections. I am a fifth cousin, twice removed. I don't know what twice removed means, except, I think, by election and defeat, maybe is what is meant, of Jimmy Carter. Now you know it. You know the worst. Jimmy Carter. He had a grandmother, I think, who was um, a K from South Carolina. And my grandmother, who really raised me, Mrs. T.P. Gore, was born Nina K from a South Carolina family. And I'm told that Carter is, this was a favorite relative. Carter was the K, and she was certainly my favorite one. So, Kennedy administration, Jackie? She, she and I had the same stepfather. Jimmy Hugh Auchincloss, I was like, let me finish with Hugh Auchincloss, who was descended on his mother's side from an uncle of Aaron Burr. And he had a painting of Theodosia. Rather, his friend of his had a painting of Theodosia that I used to look at when I was a child. That's the daughter by Burr. Next call's from San Diego. Yes, hello, uh, Mr. Vidal. Um, I would have to say that I hadn't really... Uh, heard too much of your speaking. I've been aware of your uh, sort of stature in the uh, literature community. And as a child of the baby boomers, uh, and as a product of the psychologically inadequate education that we have, unfortunately, uh, I would just 
uh, so totally surprised by the shocking clarity at which you've been sort of explaining the history of the age of imperialism in the 20th century and whatnot. And I just had a quick question regarding the uh, the relationship of William Jennings Bryan that you were speaking of earlier, and the the sort of he, how he was supported by the Greenbackers, which were uh, linked to Lincoln's Greenback policy and that sort of uh, idealism. And also, when Woodrow Wilson, uh, William Jennings Bryan ran last, I think in 1908, and then uh, Woodrow Wilson, of course, in 12, and he, of course, won the election. And uh, how Wilson, the Democratic Party, that was sort of manipulated by Wall Street when they passed the Federal Reserve, how that sort of went against everything that uh, William Jennings Bryan thought. And uh, perhaps um, in a lust uh, for wanted victory, it seems as if the uh, the Democratic Party in 1912 sold themselves out like the Republicans did after the post-Civil War era. And Thanks. So, well, a lot to work with there. Thank you for the call. Well, that's very well said. He's, he's quite right. Uh, the Democratic Party then became part of the corporate party along with the Republican Party, and it was Wilson's election that did it. Uh, Wilson himself might not have gone that line, but he, Wilson was not fell for imperialism. Wilson was very divided about World War II, and that's where he and my grandfather parted. Uh, my grandfather had helped elect him. In fact, he was in charge of the 1912 campaign out of Chicago. And they didn't get on. But uh, Wilson did say, not to him, but somebody else rather wistfully, he said, I wanted to be a domestic president, and here I am a war president. And I am, he, had, he was in favor of the war. But he said, I know at the end of this war, those great entities that I have fought, the trusts and the banks, will own the United States when this war is over, which is pretty much what happened. Apropos the caller from San Diego on, Woodrow, on uh, William Jennings Bryan, uh, Bryan demonstrated his anti-imperialism when Wilson uh, got us into the war. Bryan was his Secretary of State, and Bryan resigned. I have not known any man of state ever to resign a post so high because of a disagreement over policy. But the populists and the, the true Americans, I like to think of it, did not want foreign wars. They saw no point. Why on earth should we be disturbed by the Kaiser? So he wanted to, to have a fight with France. Let him have a fight with France. It's none of our business. And he's thought to be a buffoon, Brian, because of the monkey trial in Tennessee. He was no fool. He was a man of principle. He had a great speech. Explained in his last speech at a convention, he said, uh, no matter my faults, as a man and as a politician, I have kept the faith. In these many events over these uh, years of American history that you've chronicled, is there one that you really wish you could have been at it in person? <laughs> no. First of all, I, if I'm in a time machine, I don't want to go anywhere where there's no anesthetic. <laughs> Just forget it. I think we would be very uncomfortable in any of those past places. The one volume I, I would like to have written that, that I didn't, and it's now far too late because I can't do this sort of research anymore, but I missed out on the Mexican War. I really should have done Henry Clay and Franklin Pierce, who's a fascinating president. The most overtly, nakedly ambitious, he picks a war with Mexico in order to grab California and the whole... Uh, 
southwest of the United States. That's a fascinating time. And Lincoln was a young politician, opposed to the war, but then went along with it. And out of it came, of course, Jefferson Davis and Ulysses Grant, who was probably our greatest prose writer. His memoirs are a masterpiece. Wrote them penniless, isn't that right? Dying of cancer. He'd lost all of his money in one of the crashes that uh, Wall Street prepared. Every cent was gone. So, and he was leaving Julia, his wife, with no money. So he makes a deal with Mark Twain, who was also a publisher, who paid him an enormous advance. And uh, as he died, he, I think he finished the book one day, got the money for his wife the next, and died. Was it popular at the time? Oh, yes. It's in two volumes. And uh, in due course, it was disdained by literary people because he was known to have been a pretty bad president. But he was a very great general. What nobody knew, and it was Gertrude Stein, I think, first pointed it out. He wrote the best American prose. I mean, we've had grander writers like Henry James, but for the plain style, it was perfect. That was what West Point did. You had to be clear when you sent an order, send the second battalion to such and such a hill. You had to be precise. You couldn't be windy. And it's a beautifully tight, austere. Rather the way, well, rather like Julius Caesar's. Except Caesar's too self-serving. Caesar is nothing but trying to, trying to convince you. It was uh, Montaigne said about how maddening Caesar is. And he writes about his doings in the Gallic Wars. We all want to know how, how he was such a great general. And all he wants to do is convince us what a great engineer he was. He wastes pages after pages on how he built a bridge over a river. Grant doesn't do that. He stays with the subject. Philadelphia next. Hello. Um, it's a great pleasure for me. I'm a great admirer of your works, Mr. Vidal, and you. of you personally. I would like to speak about Lincoln. You have aptly said that he is the tragic figure of American political history. I wonder if you could expand on your opinion of the impact of his personality, both as a president and as an American icon, in the context of your broader themes of, uh, of empire and militarism. And secondly, someplace else you referred to the American Civil War as our Peloponnesian War, which I think is really a very brilliant uh, analogy, and I wish you could expand on that. Again, it was a great pleasure to hear you. Thank you. Well, Lincoln is uh, the most mysterious of the presidents, and um, I, I, there is an air, there's a kind of megalomania about him. In, when he was 29, and he was a legislator in Springfield, he gave a speech to the Young Men's Lyceum, I think it was called, and it was really on power, and presidential power. And I don't know it by heart. I can give you a little bit of paraphrase that uh, he said about the man of great ambition who will not be content with simply occupying the presidential chair first occupied by Washington. He will not want to be a successor. That will not suit him, nor will it suit anyone who is of the race of the lion and the eagle. 
such a man will be born and he will seek another field and to prevail he could free all the slaves and enslave all free men now this is Shakespeare this is Richard III warning us against himself and he's 29 when he gives it and he goes on and he takes a very odd line because he and he said all along I have no power to free the slaves there's nothing in the presidential powers there's nothing in Congress's power property is property and that is slavery is a shameful business but I can do nothing then the South being suspicious of him and the new Republican Party full of booze and Walter Scott uh, decided to start seceding and he did his best to try to hold them back but they, they were going anyway they saw the North inter intervening in their affairs and he said um, finally as they finally all went he declared war and it was on a curious issue our history books teach us it was to free the slaves of civil war well the slaves had nothing to do with it Lincoln cooked up something that was only in his own brain that it was to preserve the union and he was he was always eloquent but he said I have, some want the union to break other, others do not people differ but I have an oath sworn in heaven to preserve, protect, and defend the United States of America. You will not go. I will not acknowledge that you have left. He would never say the Confederate States of America. He never acknowledged that there was any entity but one United States. He was a unionist. He was not an abolitionist. Right or wrong is something else again. I, I treat him in a... Uh, sympathetically in a balanced way and sometimes rather critically what he did now I think much of his famous melancholy and so on was his knowledge that what he had done was reflective of that speech he gave as a young man at 29 he had transformed the United States from a rather loose federation of states into a tight union in which hundreds of thousands of young men had died and cities and cultures were wrecked and he was had created a bloodbath he also made the United States the most formidable military power in the world and I always felt and indeed the code of my you got Lincoln there I'll read you the last paragraph I do I think he knew perfectly well what he had done and I think well let's see what I think here Uh, John Hayes in Paris and uh, he was Lincoln's secretary and they're comparing Lincoln to Bismarck Bismarck at the same time was doing to the German states exact same time who were independent uh, that Lincoln was doing to the American states and I think said Mr. Schuyler to the princess we have here a subject Lincoln and Bismarck and new countries for old. And Hayes says, well, it'll be interesting to see how Mr. Bismarck ends his career.
says he, who was now more than ever convinced that Lincoln, in some mysterious fashion, had willed his own murder as a form of atonement for the great and terrible thing that he had done by giving so bloody and absolute a rebirth to his nation. Our next question is also about Lincoln. It's from Sacramento, here on the air. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Vidal. Um, I have a quote from, uh, I don't know where the quote comes from. It says, well, it's from Abe Lincoln. I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned and an era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until all wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. Could you tell me where this uh, comes from? Well, it's Lincoln, all right, and it was... I can't tell you. I've forgotten. Do you, do you know, caller? Or are I you still seeking this source? Found it in the newspaper. You found it in the newspaper. Yeah. Well, it's 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 the the Lincoln style is unmistakable. So that is Lincoln. It would have been toward the end, and it probably would have been in a letter. He, it was never in a speech, but he would he would occasionally give heartfelt letters to correspondents or to little newspapers around the country, and that was his way of addressing the people and subjects that were not. He couldn't do in the State of the Union, but uh, this sounds like w one of his meditations, which turns out to be prophetic. In your reflection on the role of historical fiction in your newest book, The Golden Age, you tell a story about the reaction by the Lincoln Files. The Lincoln Brigade, yeah. Yes. Will you tell that story? Well, which one? I've got so many stories. Well, the one is actually about your speculation that he dosed himself. Uh, oh, well, Lincoln told Herndon, who was for 17 years his law partner in Springfield, and they shared the same office. And he was the only friend I think Lincoln ever had. He had, well, in maturity. Before that, there was Joshua Speed. But Herndon, I don't even know if he's a friend, but the two men in an office, two lawyers practicing together. And Herndon is the best all we have for 17 years of Lincoln's life. And if you... Some people try to rule him out because he tells things that are inconvenient. Lincoln told him how he got syphilis uh, when he was in his late 20s. And he'd gone to a doctor in Cincinnati. Since he'd be gone to anybody in Springfield, it would have been, everybody would know. And as he said, it clung to him. He couldn't get rid of the syphilis. So he... Um, finally was cured, if you ever are, with mercury, which is very dangerous stuff to take. And it brings on all sorts of uh, mental and physical debilities. Lincoln was very odd at times, and it, it conforms. I have a doctor, Hirschhorn, I think he is, who writes me occasionally, and he's doing a study of, of Lincoln's syphilis. Uh, rather the treatment for it, which is mercury. Did he have mercury poisoning? 
And there are a great many of his symptoms, the melancholy, and the, suddenly you'd be talking to him and he'd just stare off into space and not hear you. And hideous nightmares. He would wake up screaming in the night in the White House. And uh, there's a good case to be made that he, indeed he had mercury poisoning. But at one point, they, he took something called uh, blue, well, blue pills, a purge for constipation, which had mercury in it also. And finally, he's getting worried about it because he knows something is going wrong. So he talks to the doctor about it. He f figures out he'll stop taking these purges, and he did, and he became pretty healthy again. Well, all of this was quite well. The Lincoln Brigade, a great man, has syphilis with a girl in Ohio. Oh, maggoty, said one great historian. This is a maggoty story. Well, it's an essential story. It has to do with the health and mind of a president. Forget his sex life. Why cover it up? And that's what they do. And one of the best things, results of my Lincoln, which was, has been formidably successful with the public and now with many scholars, uh, I'm, I'm really giving it to the Lincoln Brigade who keep trying to falsify him. Far more to the point than that is that um, Lincoln, I am convinced, to, to the day he went to Ford's Theater, still wanted to colonize the freed slaves at the South in Central America, he'd already got hold of some land down there, which is now near, near Nicaragua, or over in, in Liberia. He said he wanted to do that in his first State of the Union, and then he sort of dropped it in public, and in due course he freed the slaves in the South during the war, but not the ones in the North, who, from the, from the border states, uh, which he could have done, but he didn't do that because he needed the white vote there. So basically, uh, this was his plan, because he kept saying, and he rationalized it, he said these are three million people who have been held in terrible slavery. They are without education, they are without skills, and so on. And he got a bunch of free men, free black men from uh, New York to, to try and persuade their cousins in the South to go to Liberia. And one of them said to Lincoln, I have all this in the book, he said, uh, why do you think they can't support themselves when they have supported themselves and their masters in considerable luxury for the last 200 years? Well, he didn't have much of an answer for that one. And finally they said, well, you know, this is our country. We've been here as long as you have. We see no reason that we should go off to the jungles of Africa. Now, the latest word from the Lincoln Brigade is that Lincoln did have the notion but gave it up after his first year in office. Well, this ignores John Hay, his young secretary's diary, when he writes his colleague, Nicolay. He said, uh, the ancient was their code name for it. The ancient, I think, this is August 1864, I think has given up his harebrained notion to ship all the slaves out of the South. At last, he's been convinced by something had gone wrong. Then General Ben Butler, in his memoir, unsavory figure, but he says that Lincoln before had brought up the subject again in the early spring before Ford's Theater of uh, 65 about colonizing them elsewhere. 
So one very clever historian uh, came up with the fact that Secretary Stanton, Secretary of War, had said no general officer can come to town without permission, fearing a coup, I think. And Butler couldn't have been in Washington, to which my answer is nobody told General Butler what to do. If he wanted to come, he came. And if Lincoln had said that to him, uh, why not? Now, this is the extent to which, in the age of Martin Luther King, the white historians have gone out of their minds trying to readjust history. And this, is, this has been one of the great spurs for me to write these books. I can't bear the falsifications of the data. The data is pretty clear. They have to twist themselves into knots and history. So it has finally come to this, that if you want a, the real truth of a situation, you must turn to a novel and you must reject the court historians who are there to falsify. Take one last question before our brief break, and it'll be from Chicago. You're on the air. Yes, Mr. Vidal, an honor, sir. Thank you. Um, I have, there were so many questions to ask, but here's the one I'm going to ask, and it's a what-if question. If Burr had remained politically viable after the duel, or if Hamilton had not died, because of their military capabilities, do you believe the early course of the War of 1812 might have been different? For example, could we have acquired Canada, etc.? Well, as you know if you read me on the subject, uh, whenever in doubt we invade Canada. At the time of the Revolution, when the British occupied, I think they'd already occupied New York and uh, Philadelphia, first thing General Washington does at Lexington is send Benedict Arnold and Aaron Burr up to Canada, to Montreal, to, to Quebec, rather, uh, to conquer Canada. They fail. At the time of the War of 1812, uh, one of the first moves made was uh, to invade Canada. This is when the British were burning down the White House and they'd taken Washington. We didn't care about that. We wanted Canada. I think had Burr and Hamilton, not, not one dead and the other under a cloud, I think we would have been more militaristic. Burr always... I'll tell you who drove these two men. Remember, they were both five foot four or five. Uh, it was Napoleon Bonaparte. In 1800, when Burr became vice president, Napoleon was, you know, about to be Emperor of France and going to con conquer Europe. Both Hamilton and Burr had their eye on Mexico and uh, where the Spanish were. And the Mexicans didn't like the Spanish. And Hamilton was dealing with one group of indigenous Mexicans, for want of a better word, uh, to get the Spanish out. And Burr was also maneuvering to make himself emperor of Mexico after he ceased to be vice president and was under a murder charge up in New York. So he goes down the Mississippi with a little army, all prepared to invade Mexico and take over gets a lot of help, moral help, certainly, from uh, Jackson, Andrew Jackson, and Henry Clay. This was the bum rap that Jefferson, President Jefferson put on Burr. He said, Burr wants to separate the western states from the eastern. He didn't. He wanted to go down the Mississippi, go to New Orleans, go over to Mexico, and make himself emperor. So uh, Jefferson arrested him for treason, which he had not committed, and it was a bum rap, and everybody knew it, and he was exonerated. But your what-if question, uh, yes, I, I think that had Burr gone on to be president, which was the original arrangement with Jefferson, 
the Je- Jefferson was a very a noble but sly and devious man and I must say Richard M. Nixon who had the most wonderful unconscious mind says in six crises General Eisenhower was a far more sly and devious man than people suspected and I mean that in the best sense of those words I agree with uh, our caller here that uh, the 18 War of 1812 might have ended with uh, an invasion of Mexico and of Canada. Our conversation with Gore Vidal is just halfway over. We're going to take a break of about five minutes in length. During that, we'll show you some upcoming programming here on Book TV on C-SPAN 2. And then we'll, we'll be back for a second 90 minutes of in-depth conversation with Gore Vidal. In just a moment, Book TV's live in-depth with Gore Vidal continues. I Love You, Ronnie, is a new book by former First Lady Nancy Reagan. It's comprised of letters her husband, former President Ronald Reagan, wrote to her over the years, and her reflections on the letters. The book is number three on this week's New York Times bestseller list. Last week, Mrs. Reagan signed copies of the book at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. You can see that event following our live in-depth with Gore Vidal today at about 3 p.m. and later tonight at 9.30 Eastern here on Book TV. Only on C-SPAN 2. This is a new collection of essays called The Best American Science Writing 2000. And next Sunday on Book TV, we'll feature a panel discussion with contributors to this book, including Stephen J. Gould on The Scientist Discredited by Darwin, Natalie Angier on The Fashion Sense of Prehistoric Humans, and Oliver Sacks on how his family introduced him to science. The panel also includes the book's editor, James Glick, on the whole field of science writing. The Best American Science Writing 2000, next Sunday at noon and again at midnight. The Southern Festival of Books takes place in Nashville, October 13th, 14th, and 15th. Southern writers will gather to take part in book signings and panel discussions. And Book TV will bring you live coverage of the festival Saturday, October 14th, here on C-SPAN 2. Here's a list of the best-selling non-fiction books from the Conservative Book Club. At number one, Sellout by David Shippers. It examines the impeachment proceedings against President Clinton. Next, The Triumph of Liberty, Jim Powell's collection of stories about people who have contributed to America's fight for liberty, Thomas Jefferson, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Cicero, and others. At number three, The Long March by Roger Kimball looks at the effect of the 1960s cultural revolution on America. Book TV is featuring Mr. Kimball's book this weekend. The World According to Gore is a critical examination of Vice President Al Gore as he runs for president by nationally syndicated columnist Deborah Saunders. It's at number four. Next is From Dawn to Decadence by cultural critic and historian Jacques Barzin. It's a look at Western cultural life from the 16th century to the present. Year of the Rat, How Bill Clinton Compromised U.S. Security for Chinese Cash, is by Edward Timperlake and William Triplett. It's number six. Seventh is The Homeschooler's Guide to Portfolios and Transcripts by Loretta Hewer. At number eight, The Irrepressible Rothbard by Llewellyn Rockwell. What is a Man by historian and commentator Waller Newell uses writings from Shakespeare, Plato, and the Bible to define masculinity. And finally, at number ten, The Average Family's Guide to Financial Freedom by husband and wife team Bill and Mary Toohey. 
The Conservative Book Club focuses on politics, religion, history, and current events from a conservative point of view. The club was founded in 1964 and currently has 70,000 members. For more information, call 1-888-GET-BOOK. What do you like to read? Well, I love poetry, and I love literature from all over the world. Right now, I'm reading The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, and it's an amazing book. It's so weird because he is Czech, and I'm originally from Southern Africa, but the characters, they just, they're so great. It's like I can relate to some of the characters in the book. I can relate to exactly what is going on in the book and what he's talking about. It's just things that we've all probably thought at some point in our lives, but it's not, you know, been written down, it's not been articulated, and when you're reading it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is, makes so much sense. So that's what I'm reading right now. Give me an example of one of those things that you find so interesting. Okay, what I find so interesting in this particular book, um, there's a passage where he's talking about um, when you are an expatriate because his characters are Czechs living in Switzerland. And he says something about when these characters do not have a safety net, you don't have the... Um, the comfort of having your fa your family there, all your friends, and speaking the same the language that you were born, you know, into that culture you're born into. So you don't have that safety net. And at some sometimes I have felt that way because I'm an expatriate to this country. So it just makes so much sense, and I really love the book. But I also love children's book, and the BFG is my favorite book of all time by Roald Dahl. So I love that book too. <laughs> Um, history books, um, History of Venice by Norwich, um, the his, um, there's a Hitler history book by Lucas, I like, and my favorite is All the President's Men by Woodward and Bernstein. Why do you like that book? Because the movie was based on it, and I liked the movie. Which did you like better, the book or the movie? Um, the book was ten times better. <laughs> Told a lot of stuff they left out in the movie. It was really good. Um, gosh, it just, that was my favorite. Throughout the fall, book fairs and festivals will be bringing together authors, publishers, and readers. And here's a look at some of the events coming up. The 25th Annual Deep South Writing Conference gets underway October 10th. It takes place on the University of Louisiana's campus at Lafayette. Nashville, Tennessee hosts the 12th Annual Southern Festival of Books. The three-day event includes readings, panel discussions, and signings by authors from around the world. In November, the Buckeye Book Fair happens on the 4th in Worcester, Ohio. It'll highlight new releases written by Ohioans and books on topics relating to the state. The Military History Book Fair takes place in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee from November 10th to the 12th. It's part of the town's 15-day event honoring America's veterans. Also in November, the Kentucky Book Fair on the 18th in Frankfurt on the campus of Kentucky State University. And on the first weekend of December, the San Bernardino Latino Book and Family Festival gets underway with educational workshops, book signings, and poetry readings. If you'd like more information about these fairs and festivals, go to our website, booktv.org. There you'll find an expanded festival list and hot links to festival websites. And please let us know about book fairs and festivals in your area, and we'll add them to our website list. Write to us at Book TV on C-SPAN 2, 
400 North Capitol Street, Northwest, Suite 650, Washington, D.C., 20001. Mm-hmm. Gore Vidal joins us for this month's in-depth program, a three-hour conversation, which we are halfway through, and right now has a brand new book out, which is called The Golden Age. It is the seventh and final in a series of American history told in a historical novel, and also a play that has been uh, revived on Broadway. A few writers looking at your life right now are suggesting that you're in a, something of a golden age yourself. Does it feel like it? No. 75 is not a golden age. It has certain elements of lead, particularly the knees. Are you beginning to think about legacy? Are you, uh, you want to be in my will? Certainly. <laughs> is this Shall a we hint? Talk later? Yeah, we'll talk. I, I just brought a codicil with me. Uh, about preserving what's important to you beyond the works that have been published. Do you think about that sort of thing? No. As Groucho Marx once so wisely said, how he would be remembered, he said, what has posterity ever done for me? That's my view of the future. Future doesn't exist because it's not there yet. When it's there, I won't exist, so we go our separate ways. You've, I would suspect, describing your writing place surrounded by your books, collected quite a number of them over the years. Is it of interest to you to have them preserved as a collection so that others may see your work? Well, if others are interested, I mean, universities and so on, I've, my papers are transferring from one university to Harvard, to the Houghton Library, and I think that's, yes, I do, I, I do think that, for instance, correspondence, I have letters from everybody. In, that I've kept everything for 70 years. So um, it, it will all be in one place. I, yeah, I like that idea, even though I won't be around. But uh, for historians, and I, th I think more of them than anybody else, yes. Part of this program that's very important are your telephone calls, and next is one from Massapequa, New York. And uh, you are welcome to this conversation with Gore Vidal. Yes, hi. Um I'm reading these questions uh, so be a little more accurate. Uh, the first one is, what caused or prompted you to write uh, Life from Golgotha? And uh, just as a comment, uh, it, the book doesn't leave uh, the Christian faithful with much awe about the centerpiece object, i.e. the synchronon of their faith. Okay. Did you understand the question? I didn't hear a word. You didn't hear a word. You know you are not plugged in. I'm going to ask our technician to plug you in while I repeat the question. Okay, sure. Thanks very much. The the question is about the book Live from Golgotha yep. and wanted to know what prompted you and uh, her observation was that it doesn't leave those of the Christian faith with much about the centerpiece event. Well, I it is after all a satiric work on um, the founder of Christianity who was of course not Jesus but St. Paul. And it has very theology in it is not bad, and it's basically anti-Pauline that he reinvented Jesus, who intended himself only for the Jews as a possible Jewish Messiah, and Paul wanted to make him international for everybody, and that was uh, a distortion of the Christian 
original Christian message to the extent that we understand it at all. So I wrote a comedy about it, which I thought is the subject deserved. I myself have uh, become seriously, uh, well, I, I wouldn't say agnostic. I think I'm, I'm closer to atheist, but uh, I love uh, Christian quarreling, and I wrote a book called Julian, about Julian the Apostate, the 4th century emperor, who tried to um, stop Christianity in its tracks. And that was favorable to the Emperor Julian and not so favorable to the bishops that he went to war against. I think what we're going to do, I'm, your technology is not quite, uh, we're not able to connect it. So we've got a speaker in here. You're, not, you're just not plugged in. We didn't do that after our break. So we'll have to listen to the next call on speaker and make sure you can hear. Las Vegas, you are on the air. Welcome. We don't hear the speaker out here. Las Vegas, go ahead, please. Las Vegas, go ahead. Uh, hi, Susan, and uh, hi, Mr. Vidal. I'm a great admirer of yours, uh, especially because of your frankness with which you express yourself. And I enjoyed your monograph you did for Odonian Press about the American presidency. So <clears throat> I had a couple of questions. Uh, first, uh, what American presidents, if any, do you admire or did you admire? And uh, would you say a few words about uh, Noam Chomsky? Uh, who, most of whose books uh, I have and whom I also admire very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, of admirable presidents, um, it's very hard to separate them from the times in which they lived. Uh, some very marvelous men have been forgotten because they were not in, in interesting times. I would say that, um, well, John Quincy Adams, I suppose. He he served only one term, which is not successful. But I quoted from him earlier as an anti-imperialist. He also, when he was Secretary of State, he wrote the Monroe Doctrine, which has President Monroe's name, but it was his work. He was the first person, perhaps the last American president, to understand foreign affairs and what America's role should be which was do business with everybody, have no special friends, no special enemies, no prejudices, and certainly not be the world's policeman. So I suppose J.Q. Adams. Noam Chomsky and I are allies. We do the same sort of thing, but often with the same sort of audiences. We did a, uh, an anti-Gulf War uh, half-hour discussion for some independent, uh, at the time, television people. No one the two of us with an interlocutor, no one would put it on the air. Not even at 4 o'clock on a Sunday morning in San Francisco would they put it on air. I've never seen such fear across the land. I wish you'd called us. We would have aired it. Were you around at the time of... Uh, the Gulf War, yes. The Gulf War? Well, I think, I think we must have, because the, 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 the guy who produced it certainly was very busy with it. And we had a good team from ABC who did it for nothing, you know, just uh, pro bono publico. Uh, Chomsky and I, of course, we have the same enemies. And by your enemies, one, one, one is celebrated, largely the New York Times. And this funny story of Chomsky. Uh, he went to the dentist, and uh, the dentist said, you know, your teeth are all right, but you've got to stop grinding them. He said, I don't grind my teeth. He said, well, you do. The enamel is worn off. Well, I don't. 
uh, Mrs. Chomsky was there, and he asked, this, well, when he sleeps, does he grind his teeth? He said, no, no, he doesn't grind his teeth. Well, they both got terribly interested. When did it happen? Well, they finally found out that in the morning while having coffee, and she might be out of the room, he would start to read the New York Times, and his teeth would... Mind grind, too, when I read that paper, particularly the things they do to that scientist at Los Alamos, or their invention of the Whitewater plot. It's a bad paper. New Orleans, next, for Gore Vidal. Yes, uh, I love your books. I keep rereading as a matter of fact, and one of the things that, keeps, that strikes me is um, that your, uh, your work changes over the years i mean i mean not my 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 interpretation of your work changes over the years for example messiah was that kind of book for me it meant different things to me as uh different events took place in the country but one the thing i'm interested in now is is lincoln i'm rereading lincoln and uh one of the things i i wanted to know now that dutch dutch came out is there any difference other than that ideology between your method and Morris's, Edmund Morris's? Okay, thanks for the call. Actually, would you speak a bit about Messiah before we, we turn to... Yeah, Messiah came out. I had a period after The City and the Pillar when the New York Times book reviewer, Orville Prescott, and he was very powerful, he did about five daily reviews a week, told my publisher that not only would he never review a book by me, but he'd never read one. So I published seven books that were never reviewed in the Daily New York Times or by Time or by Newsweek. This was a blackout. All because I had said in The City and the Pillar about the normality of a relation between two all-American boys and I was the war novelist, etc., who was pronouncing the, upon this uh, heresy. The seventh of the books that uh, were not reviewed by the New York Times was Messiah. And it came out invisibly because you get no press, particularly uh, if the Times will not look at it or the news magazines. But something odd happened. It's about a man who sort of says, says he, he's a Messiah or people say he is. And his message is that death is no thing, therefore nothing can not be a bad thing. And in selling that, it becomes a sort of cult, which finally ends, a lot of it's been lifted from movies, Solian Green stole a wonderful piece of it where people go to commit suicide, to these comforting places and you lie and you look at a screen and you see movies or whatever. Uh, well, the book became a cult book. And in no time at all, it just, more and more people started to read it and hand it around. And I was fascinated by the diversity of those who were drawn to this thing. On another level, it showed uh, how easily through television that you could create a religion, how quickly it took Christianity centuries to take over Europe. And uh, he does it in two or three years. Then at the end, of course, they want him to commit suicide, as he's encouraged others to do. And he doesn't want to, so they have to kill him and pretend that he killed himself, as death is no thing. And how 
why it's because to this day is selling and or at least it has not not a great seller but it has uh, it has its devotees if television can so quickly create messiahs uh, why have we we're not seen them in the television age well we do we see their uh, spokespersons the uh, Jerry Falwell, Aurel Roberts, uh, Billy Graham they're doing they're making a lot of money out of being professional prophets it is now that you've asked that question that's an interesting one it hasn't occurred to me why somebody hasn't used it to start a new religion well Scientology I don't know if they've used television but they've certainly made themselves into a religion uh, from a book by a science fiction writer of the 50s we had the same publisher for Messiah that L. Ron Hubbard had for Dianetics I guess well, that's the case but not TV you'd have to have a, some, a charismatic type so far they wrap themselves in Jesus or sing my way on television Flanders, New Jersey you're next yes Mr. Vidal an honor sir um, two questions. Uh, first, what do you see the trajectory of the novel being in the next century? And second, can any amount of pleading on my behalf convince you to write an eighth in the series? Well, plead some more. I might go back to 1846. But I, I don't see myself doing the Kennedy years or anything closer, because if I did it, having been involved, I would probably have to do another memoir to cover it which might be the way of doing it, and I might yet yet do that. The novel is uh, in a, going through a strange patch. It's become academicized. Most of the writers, and certainly practically all of the reviewers, seem to be English teachers. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily a good thing. I, you can make books out of books. Writers have always done it or been inclined to do it, but anterior to literature is something called life and if you haven't had a life uh, it is a, a, but a, a really involved one even if it's just simply a, an inner life sitting by a pond in uh, New England you're not going to be very interesting and that to me is a problem that the writers now working particularly the ones who are school teachers in universities they've had so little experience of the world and there's so much they've shut out. Mary McCarthy was wonderful on this. She made a list of all the things that a novelist may not do, a novelist who's considered serious. You can't have a sunset. You can't have an election. Uh, you can't have a really good dinner party. You can't have... And she just made this list of all the things which had made classic fiction great had been carefully put away. Oh, no, that would be corny. Oh, we don't know enough about elections have a president in the book? How could you write about it? What, what are you, some sort of fantasist? You don't know any presidents. So they pride themselves on the fact that they go to school, they stay in school, they get tenure, and some may have a real talent for writing. But there isn't, a, there must be a little spark, which is known as life, to set you going. I had a fairly interesting life, and certainly three years of the Army gave me an awful lot to write about. So... The trajectory, I don't think, is very promising. People who want narratives, who want to be amused by stories, are now video cassettes. I find something very odd going wrong 
with people who use computers. Now, maybe it's the people, or maybe it's just my inability to understand, but I think the prose is flattening out. I can tell computer prose very often now, particularly when the same paragraph occurs three times in two pages, and I know it's a computer on a blink. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But uh, I think that the only form of prose that is going to last is the essay. People need that. That is, it's short. It's uh, one man's voice making connection with another man's person's eyes. It, it is, you're suddenly you've got Montaigne from 500 years ago, and he's talking to you as though you're in the room, and you can respond to him. It's a, really the kinetic energy is so great between the great essayists and the readers. Well, speaking of essays, we should tell our audience that a new collection of your essays is scheduled for the spring. For well, the spring, yes. They're reissuing United States, which Random House, my last publisher, the second I left them to go to Doubleday, uh, pulped it. They just got rid of it. And the first it was my collected essays over. Do you think? That should do it. Oh, I, I go on writing, of course, but it's, this is a, a pretty big book of essays. It'll be some time before I have another volume. Will you talk just a minute about editors over the years and how you use editors? I don't have much to do with them. I've got a very nice one at Doubleday who's actually interested in books. Most of them are interested in marketing now, and their eyes glaze over at the thought of literature. He, he likes it. He's dedicated to it. Uh, I had one very fatherly one, Nicholas Radin at E.P. Dutton, when I was 19, 20. And Dutton published uh, about seven novels, about ten novels, ending with Messiah. And he was very nice, white Russian. And he was a, a very good editor. And no problem. I don't, I'm not edited, you know. I'm copy edited to go over to make sure that and I have no dangling participles, but uh, I don't get help for anything. I've completed the work by the time I give it to the publisher. And a uh, wonderful man at Little Brown, where I was probably happiest, and left them like a fool. They did Julian, and they did Washington, D.C., and they did Myra Breckenridge. And we had a successful time. Random House was not so pleasant, and Double Day is. Well, we're on the subject of, of how we write and the mechanics. When you described Grant's writing as West Pointian, what about your own? How would you describe your writing? Well, I have different different voices. I'm a mimic, and I can mimic, or used to, you know, when younger and more alert, I could almost do anyone's voice. And also, being a dramatist, uh, I can make scenes and people actually talk in different voices, which conform with whatever their characters are. If I'm impersonating a Roman emperor, I will have one style for Julian. Myra Breckenridge has a style never before heard or seen on this earth. She is furious. Terrible clamor in my head as I was putting her down. So there are different styles. In fact, let me show the cover for the paperback of Myra Breckenridge as we take our next telephone call, and it is from Seattle. 
Uh, hello, uh, Mr. Vidal. I really appreciate your books, and I was wondering if you'd comment on the uh, use of covert activity from the time of Burr through Lincoln, and now that we're spending $30 billion on covert activity to actually controls our foreign affairs. How do you... I, I mean, all the people are interested in spies, but most people don't believe that, are not interested in really knowing what's going on with our CIA in this country. Well, I deplore our secret government, which the CIA is. I deplore the Los Angeles Police Department, which used to have a foreign policy, and uh, they were against uh, enemies of the Vietnam War, which I was. Uh, the whole country is uh, becoming a police state. Here's a statistic that I saw on the front page of U USA Today about a week ago. There are six million people in prison or in what they call incorrection. I suppose that's parole or reform schools or something. Six million people. That's three percent of the adult population. No other country has ever imprisoned so many of its own people proportionately as we have done. What is this about? The harassment of Americans. Have you taken a trip by plane lately? I have to travel with a passport in my pocket in my own country. Well, we have to have an ID with a picture. Well, why do you have to have an ID with a picture? Don't you? If, if I'm a terrorist, I'm, I'm going to have a fake one, you fool. Uh, this harassment never lets up. We now have in New York, there's a, uh, every taxi cab. Buckle up, this is uh, Edith Wharton. Well, you know, a government that does not care enough about us to give us a national health service, which other countries have, is terribly worried that we may go through the windshield. This constant harassment of the people. And one day, I think they're going to rise up and tear this damn thing to pieces. Would that I were young, and it was spring, and very heaven to be there. Hometown next, Washington, D.C. Mr. Vidal, what a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, my favorite of yours was Lincoln, and I picked it up for the first time ten years ago, having never paid too much attention to historical fiction. I then embarked on a reading campaign over the course of five years. Sandberg, Bruce Catton. I, it just brought history alive for me in a way that no one else had. And indeed, you will live on. These <laughs> books that I'm standing in my apartment looking at now, my son will inherit, and of course his children will. And hopefully from it will come a, hist uh, a historian that you so admire. So um, I have a question. I've noticed an attitude of disrespect that's being embraced by uh, scholars, by teachers, by schools toward the accomplishments of our forefathers, uh, not just our politicians, our leaders, but our business leaders in general in this country. Many people feel this ties in with the changing demographics of this country. How do you feel? I don't, I wouldn't use the word disrespect. I think analysis, and it's not brilliant analysis because the people in our universities are are rather timid and conform for a lot of reasons. But I think that many people are asking questions. Why uh, have we come to the point that I have to carry a passport in the United States so that I have ID with a picture? 
Over the years, attempts have been made for us to have a, cards of identity, which fascist states require, and Bonaparte-style democracies also require, like Italy and France. This is alien to the American tradition, and yet now they've got it. I don't know how a, a diner's club with a picture on it is identification of any kind, but anyway, that's what they want. The constant intrusion, the getting hold of your social security number, what they're doing now on the Internet and buying things and they have a records, they keep thorough records on just about everybody. I think if there is disrespect for that, I think that's good. And if there is curiosity about how we got into this state, most people think the CIA was always there. It wasn't. It was founded in uh, 48, 47, 48. Uh, it's totally illegal, unconstitutional, I should say. Uh, it, it does not submit its, its uh, accounts to Congress as the Constitution required. Lately, they have seemed to be conforming to the law, but I rather doubt it. It's, it's totally a rogue out there. We have so many secret services that we don't know anything about them. And we have so many activities going on abroad that we will never know anything about because they are kept obscure from us. Remember, you know, David Hume said in 1745, he said, how are the many who are many and so powerful and thus powerful controlled by the few who are few and less powerful? He said, it is done through opinion and opinion is formed by the schools and the churches and the broadsheets, which is what they call newspapers then. He who controls religion, who controls education and the press, the class that does, will create any opinion that it wants, to do anything that it wants. If it's in England, they want a war with France, opinion will go against the French. I have been reading American opinion all my life. I have, been reading, I have never read a story in the American press that was favorable to any other society. We are constantly bad-mouthing every other country on earth, and we're the greatest, we're the greatest, we're the greatest. Everybody envies us. We're so good. Sweden, yes, they have better education, better health service, better daycare centers for working mothers, but they're all alcoholics, and they kill themselves. As though because you have good health and good education, you'll be so bored with your life that you will want to commit suicide and get drunk. This constant drip torture of misinformation has really skewed the entire country. No one knows what to think about anything. I think a great many people have just pulled out. They just ignore the constant propaganda. Yes, we do get a lot of fairly true information, but who can wade through it? It comes at us in such avalanches. Changing times. Palm Springs, California for Gore Vidal. Thank you for C-SPAN, and thank you for this uh, interview with Mr. Vidal. Uh, my name is Joanna, and I met you, Gore. Uh, I had the great fortune of meeting you in Rome and also to have lunch with you in Ravello. Together with my friend Joan, we would use Mind Dynamics for an encounter with you in the Piazza del Pantheon. I even wrote anonymous notes saying, Gore Vidal, you are so beautiful. That was 15 years ago. Now I would like to say to you, Mr. Vidal, you are too beautiful. Thank you, Mr. Vidal. Well, thank you. I haven't received a compliment like that in at least 15 years. <laughs> Milwaukee. Mr. Vidal, um, I work for a radio station, and I'm, I'm very 
protective of uh, people's trust of daily journalism, whether it's from broadcasting or newspapers. And I remember seeing a movie 25 years ago called Network, in which he warned, uh, Patty Chasky warned us of messengers who would come and say, don't trust the mass media, trust me. And, and he would lead them in a direction, plus inform them at the same time. And are we getting closer to an age of that where we have people who call themselves the messengers. The mass media is not reporting this, but I'm the one that's telling you this inside information, and here's the direction that our government and society should be headed. Is this something new, or has this always happened in various forms in American history? Well, governments generally mislead us, and then again, messengers generally have the wrong message. So there is no generality that we can make out of this situation. I think the opinion, in the sense that David Hume used it, is constant and is generally self-serving, in this case for the government of the United States. There are messengers, there are voices that are telling the truth, that are useful. However, everything that a government can do to silence Noam Chomsky or me, that's an example, uh, they will do. I talked to Chomsky, I was up at Harvard giving a lecture, and they had flyers all around the Harvard Yard saying where I would be speaking, what time. About several hundred of them. Within 30 minutes, they'd all been torn down. There was no mention that I was there in the Harvard Crimson, no message in the Boston Papers. I drew two or 3,000 people. Uh, that was the day I saw Chomsky. And he said, uh, I explained it, he said, well, they do that to me, too. I said, okay. And it's all across the country this happens. Because opinion does not want us to be heard. And I said, okay, how is it that we, we draw one, two, three thousand people? How do they know we're there? And Chomsky said, I think it's mystical. I don't know how. There is some sort of underground out there that knows when something interesting is going to happen. So that's how we messengers get around, caller. Uh... We are drawn by the underground. The underground has pulled us into their orbit. Who is tearing down the flyers? At that time, I should think what is called neoconservatives were the most motivated. Next call, Idaho Falls. That's in Idaho. Go ahead, please. Uh, uh, well, I um, was interested by your comment where you uh, mentioned that the American history has been uh, dealt from a very small deck. Uh, the Adams family seems to be part of this deck, which is uh, distinct from uh, your connections. I, and you talked about Brooks Adams. I guess I was interested if you could elaborate a little more on this person. He's the one Adams member of the Adams clan that I have a lot of uh, trouble finding out anything about. It's a very good biography of Brooks Adams. I have a copy of it. Don't ask me the author's name. I'm at that stage of my... In the springtime of my senility, I'm beginning to lose names right and left. But Brooks Adams, uh, there is a good biography of him. There's a great deal written about him. And he, of course, wrote a great deal. And he was sort of... Uh, he figures in a novel of mine called Empire, if you want to see what I have done with him. Uh, I have a very funny scene when he, he announces that McKinley has been shot. And he comes rushing down, and Henry Adams, the Adamses, are staying up in New England for the summer. And McKinley's been shot, and their friend Theodore Roosevelt is now president. And Brooks Adams, and I 
whenever I have a scene with a real person like Brooks Adams, I take it from letters, I take it from life. And he came rushing down the lawn and he said, he will be greater than Trajan, he will be greater than all the great Roman emperors and so on. Sort of a hymn to empire. But Brooks had all sorts of uh, curious notions. I talked earlier in the program about Shanxi province in uh, China, which was very rich in minerals and so on. He who controlled it would control the world. and That was a Brooks Adams proposition. Uh, he also figured out at the time of the First World War, he said, uh, Germany is too small a country to... I've, he had a funny, funny image, simile, to swing the hammer, some, some phrase like that. They're far too small. They'll find at the end of this war there are only two great powers standing, United States and Russia, which is right on. Uh, he is to be read. And then the deterioration of the democratic process. can't remember if that was he or Henry Adams, or did he edit Henry Adams? But I associate that with him. But get him, he's uh, well worth reading. Well, speaking of characters in your book, I think we might have sidestepped an earlier caller's question about Dutch and the technique of inserting fictional characters into biography. Also, Edmund Morris, the author, is in that book, as you are in your most recent book, The Golden Age. What do you think about this whole technique, and does it belong in biography as opposed to historical fiction? Well, historical fiction is a, is a curious phrase. If it's fiction, it's not history. If it's history, it's not fiction. I have worked out a blend over the years in which my history is history. Uh, the historical figures do what they did and say what they did pretty much. Then I have made-up characters to mix with them. I know Edmund Morris slightly, and it may well be that he, uh, he might have picked up something from me along the way about the mixture. I haven't read Dutch. But... Um, I gather from what I've heard about it that he makes himself a very major character. I'm a very small character in the Golden Age. I'm this just there at the end to bring down the curtain and give my Prospero speech and uh, our revels and how our ended and to contemplate what is history, what is real, what is fact. I've dealt with it all through the series with William Randolph Hearst inventing wars, inventing it, news, and then historians working from his inventions, and then what is real. And I, then I come back to a Henry Adams uh, image, which is all his energy. And he had this image of the dynamo, which would be the great 20th century uh, uh, god. It is energy, it is force that, ma that matters. And matter that matters is force. Well, may I get you to read just one other paragraph while you're speaking about the closing of this book? This is your view of the human race. The last paragraph right there. As for the human case, the generation of men come and go and are in eternity no more than bacteria upon a luminous slide and the fall of a republic or the rise of an empire so significant to those involved is not detectable upon the slide even were there an interested eye to behold that steadily proliferating species which would either end in time 
or with luck becomes something else since change is the nature of life and its hope. And what do you mean with those observations? Metamorphosis. Change. Transformation. Uh, before I get to that point, I've already got Aaron Burr coming back. And some of the characters are coming back. It's now the year 2000. And we are in Ravello doing a TV program. And the young director who is Aaron Burr come back. He's a descendant of Burr. And I asked him, what are you going to do this time since I'm not the writer anymore? Oh, he said, it will... He said, I'm not going to bother with politics, but it'll be, it'll be something different, more vast. I said, oh, you mean the Internet? I, no, no, he said, larger than that. I think the next thing is a restructuring of the human race physically that this is now a possibility, that we, with genetic experiments, we can evolve a new kind of human being. Now, of course, we can evolve a monster or an angel or a cross between the two. But I think if there's a human race in a thousand years, we won't look anything like we do now. I'm not saying that in the book because I'm not going to end with anything technical uh, or pseudo-technical. But if we are to survive, otherwise we will, we, we will die. I mean, the planet is clearly dying. Uh, we'll, we're running out of water. The air is polluted. There are too many of us. And we've used up too much of the planet. So either we escape to another planet, which we will... That's why I use the image of bacteria. We're like bacteria. And the planet is our host. And we're eating it up because there are too many of us. So either we die out or we transform ourselves. That's my message to the troops. Next, for Gore Vidal's Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mr. Vidal, first, first I want to say that throughout my life I've learned more. I've learned history and social critique through the work that you have done, and I think I have read more books by you than any other person on the planet ever at any time. Second, I want to say something about an experience I had 25 years ago. When I tried to meet you psychically, and I, and I ended up in the Beverly Hills Hotel, and maybe you'll recall that moment, and my friends were there, and you, I told you this experience, and you were most gracious to me. And I, for that, I'm very appreciative. I think the confidence that I took in mind and thinking about that I could do something to affect the life of myself, others, the planet, and being an activist actually derived from that moment of meeting you and i was i'm 50 today now my question 25 years later or from that time is that in your books it seems to me that you actually transcend time and space do you feel that there's another energy that motivates you as well as the research thank you for contributing so much to my life and the life of the people on this planet Thank you. That's the second caller who has attempted to make psychic connections with you. Does this happen to you a lot? You're making one now. <laughs> I don't know about this other force. Um, we're certainly all interconnected. We all go back to the Big Bang. We, we're, we're all units of energy that, when we go cold and dead, entropy, as they call it, uh, we, then the elements that make us up will be rearranged in new kinds of energy, new kinds of force. Uh, 
So in that sense, we are agreeably immortal, though the consciousness that is Jane and the consciousness that is Jack is not going to continue. But the material, the matter that makes us up, does go into new arrangements. And at the end of the Golden Age, I am, through the return of Aaron Burr, trying to show that uh, something is can be in the works, and it's probably going on. We can say it's psychic. We can say it's part of our common heritage of that in initial bang that started creation. What it is, where it is, we have still don't know. It's a pity. It's like being handed a mystery story and you, you get interested in it and halfway through so they take it away from you. Oh, you don't need to know the end. Next call is from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Welcome. Hello, Susan. Hello, Mr. Vidal. How are you? I have a two-part question. Uh, in your wonderful uh, play, I guess from 1960, The Best Man, uh, it was Senator... Joe Cantwell, was he based upon Senator McCarthy? And secondly, did you have any say in, in, in the casting of the uh, film in the leads uh, played by Henry Fonda and uh, Cliff Robertson? Um, yes, I uh, worked with the producers on the casting, and Fonda was marvelous, and Cliff Robertson uh, was the best he's ever been as Cantwell. Cantwell was not based on uh, Joe McCarthy. But, I mean, uh, none of them are based on anybody. They're suggested by certain political types, and there's a Nixonian ruthless type, which is much closer, I suppose, to Senator Cantwell. But the interesting thing about the play and, and how it works, when it works, is um, the supposedly good guy has a lot of things wrong with him and the supposedly bad guy has a lot of good things going Chris Noth is wonderful as Senator Cantwell and half the audience thinks that he probably should be president despite his ruthless amoral ways and Spalding Gray who plays the elegant Stevensonian style candidate um, has a lot of things wrong with him that you might not want in a president so the audience is... I, I, don't, I don't tell anybody what to think about characters. I obviously have opinions, but I, I give the evidence. I give the characters autonomy. They say, they take over, they say and do what, what they must do, unless they're historical, in which case I stay with the agreed-upon facts. So I think it's... A, first of all, it would be boring if you knew what you thought about your characters before you wrote them. And it would be very dull if you had a message to deliver. You, you just let it evolve, and then as you go over it, you begin to see what, what it is you've done. You, generally, I find one writes to find out what one thinks. And I find if I don't write, I don't think. I just... I'm, I, I, I sensate, that's about all. Portland, Oregon, you're next. Good afternoon. Uh, yes, it is indeed an honor to uh, ask you a question, Mr. Vidal. Actually, I have two questions. First, you talked about the deck of cards being very small, and I'd like to know more about the relationships or the uh, among the presidents. I know Franklin Roosevelt was supposedly related to 11 presidents. Number two, had Ben Franklin and the others in Paris failed to get French help, what would have been the result, and how long would it have taken us to throw off British rule? Thank you so much. 
Well, that's a good question. Without the French, I don't think we could have done it. You know, Washington, for all of his uh, really great great character and, and staying power, was not a very skillful general. Thank God neither was Cornwallis, so we, we didn't have two Bonapartes fighting each other here. But had the French fleet not come in at the end and decided the whole thing, we might have lost the revolution, and we might have gone on for a time as a possession of England. But, as, as even the, the, the stupidest British government realized, you cannot have a colony 3,000 miles away whose population soon will be larger than yours. I mean, it's just it would have fallen apart. In other words, we, we would have had a republic later on rather than immediately. We might have had a monarchy. There were a lot of monarchists, and uh, was, there was serious discussion. Should George Washington, had George Washington's not name been not George, he might have, had he been William, he might have become king. He, I, th I think he was tempted. But we were getting rid of George the Third for George the First. I mean, that would send shivers down proto-populist spines. But it was all important, the French aid, and uh, we got it, and that was that. Small deck of cards, particularly at the beginning, uh, particularly people who've been here a long time, whether English from the British Isles or Dutch like Roosevelt. Yes, uh, through intermarrying, a web of marriages, you do get related to everybody. Uh, my relations are more on the redneck side, and Franklin Roosevelt's were more on the eastern arist aristocracy, uh, which intermarried all along. So all the great Dutch families, Beekman and so on. Roosevelt was far more proud of being related to the Beekman family, which were last distinguished in the 17th century in the state of New York, than he was of being fifth cousin to Theodore Roosevelt. The Humbines work. Earlier, you mentioned the number of years that you were shut out from the New York Times. Today, as you and I are talking in this town, pick up the papers read by many, both the New York Times and Washington Post have reviewed your new book. Do you tend to read reviews? Well, I read this one because I'm going to take some action against the Times. I don't quite know what, but uh, they're in for a bit of punishment. They gave the book, The Golden Age, to a British journalist who is Catholic, has no subjects that I can tell other than the glories of being and sufferings of being gay. And Marty Parrott's of the New Republic brought him over to everyone's surprise uh, to edit the New Republic. I guess that didn't pan out. Now he's a freelance journalist. The Times wanted an all-out attack on the Golden Age. So they give it to somebody who knows no American history. And he makes so many mistakes. I forget what he says about me. The mistakes that he makes, no editor who knows anything would allow in their paper. He writes, it is silly when Gore Vidal says that the Japanese wanted to surrender before the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. Everybody knows they wanted to. In May of 45, the bomb was August of 45, Every, everyone who knows anything about that war, he knows nothing, knows the Japanese were trying to surrender. They were defeated. 
And the only sticking point was that Roosevelt had said unconditional surrender, as Lincoln had said in the Civil War. And they had a condition, which was they could retain the emperor. And uh, they were still arguing about that. Roosevelt is now dead. Harry Truman goes to Potsdam. He goes back. He wants to go back on all the agreements made at Yalta by Roosevelt. In the middle of his meetings with Stalin, Stalin has promised to come into the war uh, against Japan. Suddenly, in the middle of the meetings, he gets a message that a, a bomb has gone off near Los Alamos in the desert, and the, and the atom bomb works. He now knows that the war in Japan will be over any time he drops it. Meanwhile, the Japanese are trying to surrender, and uh, they're dragging. The, we're dra dragging our feet, and he wants to drop the bomb to frighten Stalin. That was that was the whole point to the bomb. Japan was there was no Tokyo. The B-29s had eliminated the city. So this was a very brutal act of of diplomacy. I guess there's a polite word for it to scare Stalin and to say, look, we're the masters of the world now. We have this extraordinary weapon, and you don't, and it'll take you years because you're too primitive. Anyway, this joker, who should not be allowed to write about these things, or if he is, he certainly should be heavily edited and corrected, uh, doesn't know this. He knows nothing, indeed, about the subject of the book, which is Roosevelt administration and Harry Truman and Dean Acheson. I have a marvelous aria by Herbert Hoover. Well, I don't make up a Herbert Hoover aria or a Roosevelt aria. I take it from what they've actually written or said. And it's a it's a quite a passage. If you've got it, he, he's got it in his review. And I've come to quite admire Hoover in some ways. But Hoover was a very perceptive man. And... Uh, now, he acts as though, this reviewer, as though I have made up this speech for Hoover when Hoover himself wrote it. I am certain that the next war will, abs will transform us absolutely. And he means World War II. I see more power to the great corporations, more power to the government, less power to the people. That's what I fear. Because once this starts, it is irreversible. You can't extend the mastery of the government over the daily life of a people without making government the master of those people's souls and thoughts, the way the fascists and the Bolsheviks have done. In a serpentine way, Franklin is going in the very same direction that they have gone in, and I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Now, mind you, Herbert Hoover was a bitter man who had just been, had been defeated badly by uh, Roosevelt in the 1932 election. He was also very, very conservative, which I thought it was nice to give the conservative point of view, since I'm thought to be liberal. And so uh, now you have a quotation from Herbert Hoover, and he thinks that I make up everything. And he's trying to tell, use the authority of the New York Times to say, oh, don't believe anything he says. Hoover never said that. That's Vidal talking. Well, this is saying that what I do is totally a fraud. And that's actionable. What would make you happy from the New York Times? Oh, if they'd fold. <laughs> well, with regard to this review, when you say it's actionable. Uh, well, we'll see what, what, what action might be taken. I'll tell you one thing. If I wrote a letter to the New York Times correcting all of the distortions and just lies that he has written, 
they wouldn't publish it. They never publish letters that criticize them. They just get lost. Renata Adler did a book about The New Yorker in which she mentions, uh, rather unpleasantly, the editor of this book section. And um, The Times took revenge on Renata Adler, on her little book on The New Yorker, and wrote she's seven or eight pieces, different parts of the paper, attacking her in the book over and over and over again. She wrote two letters to the Times trying to correct them. They wouldn't publish them. So she went to Harper's Magazine and did her entire attack on the New York Times and what it had tried to do to silence her. This is a bad newspaper. Virgin Islands, thanks for waiting. You're on the air now. Mr. Vidal, can you um, comment on the um, influence uh, of Freemasonry on the American government and the possibility that American imperialism might very well be an extension of British imperialism? I don't know much about Freemasonry. My grandfather Vidal was a 33rd degree Mason, and I never knew what that meant. I don't, well, I don't know. It's a secret society, allegedly. Uh, it certainly had great power in England. The Prince of Wales was almost always automatically uh, the nominal head of uh, the Freemasons. And we've had many important Americans have been Freemasons. But I would think if there was a smoking gun, somebody would have noticed it by now. I haven't. Corvidal is spending three hours with us on our in-depth program this afternoon. We have about 25 minutes left in that conversation. Next calls from Sacramento. Caller, you obviously have your TV set turned up too loudly. Why don't you turn it down and then go ahead? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think we're going to work with that call. Let's move on, if we can, please, to our next call from St. Louis. Hello, Mr. Vidal. I want to thank you so much for uh, your book on Lincoln. I, the first uh, biography I ever read was in first grade was about him, and I then read everything I could about him. And when I read your book, it made him into flesh for me, and it was just an absolute wonderful experience. My question for you, you very much disappointed me when you said, well, I'd like to write about the Mexican War, but I don't have that time to research any longer. Who can you recommend these days as, let's say, someone who's going to take on your mantle to, to write these historical novels that do indeed put, put flesh and breath in, in a, into a, a magnificent history that's, that's so much better than any, any story could ever be? Can you recommend anybody that I can be looking forward to reading their books since you are disappointing me so much by saying that you're not going to write another. Well, I, I don't read much historical fiction because I have to read so much history. But I think for your purposes, you know, let us let us hope that in the near future we're getting some very good young historians are coming along. And I think that they will fill in what, what you want filled in in your view of the past. They're much smarter and sharper than, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. You don't have the Dumas Malones, you know. He wrote that huge life of Jefferson, which he had nothing interesting to say about the most interesting of the presidents. Look to history, look to biography. I think that's a rich field. What are you reading right now? I'm reading uh, Trevelyan's Life of John Bright. 
And John Bright was a Quaker. He was in Parliament in England. He was a liberal in the 1870s. And a superb writer and superb speaker. And a great influence on my grandfather. Can you think of this boy from Mississippi who goes out to Indian Territory and invents a state called Oklahoma and spends his time reading through a surrogate John Bright and all of these English uh, radicals. That's what I'm reading. San Jose. Yes, Mr. Mr. Vidal, um, I'm, I'm one of these late readers. I always read books about six years after they've been published, and I'm uh, enjoying Empire. I'm particularly enjoying your description of Theodore Roosevelt with his clicking teeth. Um, I guess my question has to do with the American aristocracy. Every time I mention it, I'm told that I'm engaging in class warfare. My daughter... Um, is applying for college, and she has a 3.8 GPA, a very high SAT, and she was basically advised that her chances of getting into Yale were nil, yet George Bush, with a C average in high school, gets into Yale with mediocre grades at Yale by his own admission, gets into Harvard Business School. For the rest of his career, he's basically protected by corporate interests who continue to fund his campaign. And I guess my question is one that never seems to be discussed, is what is the state of the American aristocracy? And if there's time, how does it differ with the British aristocracy? Having, having lived in Britain, do you, do, you, do you agree with me, my having lived in Britain, do you agree with me that at least the British aristocracy has a redeeming quality that everybody admits it's there and that by right they get accepted to Eton and not by supposed merit. Thank you. Well, we certainly have a, <clears throat> a very durable aristocracy. There's enough meritocracy that people join the aristocracy, both here and in England. England is always taking in new people. Uh, to have new blood, but the the heart of an aristocracy are the schools, and uh, this is interesting. You use the example of, of your daughter, and you use the example of Bush, who went to Andover and Yale, and I went to Exeter and would have gone to Harvard had I not chosen the army instead. Uh, it's the schools are what control the opinion of the children of the rich and or powerful. Uh, I had a stepbrother who was going to inherit a lot of money and he was sent to Groton. That's where Groton, St. Mark's and so on, uh, those schools uh, are invented for those who will be rich to make them into, not only into gentlemen and scholars, but to inculcate certain values. Opinion. I come back to David Hume. This is how opinion is formed in the ruling class. They know if you're sent to Groton what they're going to get in the way of moral and political training, what their view of the world will be. I belong to the ruling class. I'm his stepbrother. But I'm not going to inherit any money. So I'm sent to Exeter, which is for the bright boys of the ruling class, who will eventually work for the rich boys. And we will become 
judges, senators, uh, editors of the New York Times. Many fields are open to us, bankers. But we, we are the sort of apparatchiks, and not properly speaking except by birth, a member of the ultimate class. Well, that's how it's done, and that's how they continue it. Uh, there's always been a move in England where, as you point out, they, they know about the upper classes, and we're not told. We have the most intelligent upper class I've ever seen, or at least overall they are. Nobody knows they're there. They own the newspapers. The newspapers aren't going to give the game away. Who really owns what? Who really controls what? Who controls opinion? And to be there and never be named, I mean, people like Spengler and so on have, have done marvelous works, but nothing really gets through to the people at large. And so... Uh, they go on and on. Occasionally, a maverick appears among them. I was one. And there are others. But by and large, it's a closed corporation. There's a very good guy, if you want to read more about this, called G. William Domhoff. D-O-M-H-O-F-F. -F. He teaches at Santa Cruz, or used to, University of California, who rules America. He's written three or four of those books. What he does, he goes through... Uh, corporations, and he gets lists of directors. Then he goes through the social registers uh, and uh, finds their names. And then he starts to find what clubs they belong to, uh, where they went on to college. And he begins to construct, you begin to know all their names. They, they become sort of friends that you don't have. And would we likely find them on the lists of invitees to this and previous White Houses? Of course. Some more than others, you know. I mean, now with the cost of television so high, a somewhat cruder sort of millionaire is coming to the White House. I don't think you'll see many Mellons going there or Rockefellers, but you will see uh, movie moguls. Next is Ogunquit, Maine. Are you there? An operator in the line. Hello. Yes, go ahead, please. Peter Can Lucas, will you clear the line? Hello. Caller, go ahead, please. Um, yes, uh, um. Uh, very interesting program. Thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, my question for Mr. Vidal, uh, I have never read a Gore Vidal novel and wonder, in your opinion, sir, where should I start? Well, I don't know. If what we've been talking about, largely about, which is the American Empire and the Republic for which it does not stand, I'd start with Empire, which is Theodore Roosevelt and Hearst and uh, it's sort of a duel between two titans. Will Roosevelt, through his strenuousness and empire building and the seizure of the Philippine Islands and Cuba, is he going to really be the Augustus of a new, great new world empire? Or is William Randolph Hearst, who controls opinion and who can make him or break him, or so he thinks, uh, be the, the titular deity of the empire? And it's, it's a duel between these two great figures throughout the book. And it's kind of funny, too. Have you a favorite among all of these? No, I don't. Big favorites. Like choosing among your children? Yes. Next call is from Costa Mesa, California. Hi, good afternoon to the both of you. Thank you. A uh, question for Mr. Vidal. I tuned in a few minutes ago and heard you almost blithely toss off a comment about the uh, Japanese trying to surrender 
uh, before the atomic bomb was passed. And although I'm not a learned man or a scholar, I've read dozens of memoirs and books about the subject. And although there might have been some behind-the-scenes negotiations with the Swiss, it seems that there was uh, uh, not much not much thinking that the uh, surrender terms were were really uh, taken seriously by the Americans. And so I, I just wonder how you tossed that comment off. And uh, I just didn't think that they were really trying to surrender at that time. Well, you're not supposed to think they were trying to surrender. Uh, it is the will of the American government and the school teachers who follow the lead of uh, the government, largely because they have to, because of the huge allocations for research and development that universities get, which affects the humanities, that is, the history departments as well. Anticipating such a question as yours, I will give you a little reading list. First of all, in May of 1945, Alan Dulles, you made a reference to the Swiss meetings, uh, he was, I think, head of the OSS, part of the OSS, was having conversations with the Japanese about the conditions of surrender. Uh, we had said unconditional surrender, but basically we were probably willing to adjust it. Uh, they had a condition. They wanted to keep the emperor. So I would s propose that you read, let me see here, The Decision to Use the A-Bomb by Edwin Fogelman, F-O-G-E-L-M-A-N. It's very thorough. And also, Unconditional Surrender by John D. Chappell, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. This is one of the most thorough uh, studies of what preceded the dropping of the bomb. By the 28th of May, the president had been assured that uh, the Japanese were defeated. Admiral Nimitz said, we don't need to invade, and we certainly don't need to use nuclear weapons. They will surrender in the course of the summer. Now, that's Nimitz, who was the admiral of the fleet in the Pacific at the time. Stimson, the Secretary of War under Roosevelt, had been Secretary of State under Herbert Hoover. And Stimson asked by committee, was he surprised when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor? This was earlier, but leading up to it, to the, the way the Japanese mind allegedly worked, he said, I was not surprised, letting on that it's because I knew the situation best, having been Secretary of State, that indeed, uh, if put in a box, I'm now shifting from the atomic bomb to uh, Pearl Harbor, that Roosevelt provoked Japan into attacking us. In 1940, he got reelected by saying that no sons of yours will ever fight in a foreign war unless we are attacked. And that was his campaign pledge to the American people. He got elected president. He wants to go into the war on the side of England, which is being battered by the German Air Force. France has fallen. Eighty percent of the American people do not want to go to war any more than they wanted to go to war in 1917. He does his best to try and convince them. And virtuously, since I'm on the side of England against Germany, I too was all for the idea that we give them destroyers, material, help Russia too. But the American people aren't going to buy a war. The only way he can get in, Japan has made a tripartite agreement with Germany and with Italy. 
Each will help the other in case of war. Roosevelt is now deliberately moving Japan into attacking us. Finally, in August, I think it was, of uh, 1941, he um, gave them an ultimatum. Through Cordell Hull, his Secretary of State, they had two Japanese ambassadors that come to Washington. And he said, you must withdraw from the mainland of Asia. Since 37, they've been trying to conquer China, and they'd already conquered Manchuria. If not, we will put an embargo on you. And they were getting, most of their oil came from us, and scrap metal. They didn't have metal of their own. They imported if you don't obey this ultimatum, they immediately prepared for an attack on Pearl Harbor. Apologists for Roosevelt in this instance, by the way, I am pro-Roosevelt and pro-New Deal. I'm anti-American empire. Apologists for Roosevelt say that he expected the attack to come at Manila or some other place. He didn't expect this massive all-out attack on Pearl Harbor, which cost us 3,000 lives. It, it came to pass on the 7th of December, 1941. A week before the attack, he wrote a letter, it's all a matter of history, to Wendell Wilkie, the Republican opponent, his, his Republican opponent, in the previous election, and he said... We will be attacked probably before next Monday. And we were attacked on Sunday. Now, if he could write that a week before to Wendell Wilkie, why didn't he write it to the commanders at Pearl Harbor? The only warning that they were given by the War Department was to watch out for saboteurs that they were around. And a funny order came to move some of the newer ships out of Pearl Harbor and send off in a westerly direction. I hope that answers you. Bloomington, Indiana, with about 10 minutes left to go. You're on the air. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to Gore Vidal, and I appreciate what C-SPAN is doing in exposing different points of view. Uh, I have a question about three specific individuals. Uh, first of all, Howard Zinn, I'd like to know if you're uh, a friend of his and if you approve of his work. Uh, second of all, Allen Ginsberg, uh, I'd like to know what your uh, opinion is on his role as a spokesman, not just for radical causes, but particularly for the cause of tolerance for sexual diversity. And finally, I'd like to revisit the subject of Ralph Nader, where I, I really don't understand your opinions, because uh, the opinions you've expressed about the duopoly are virtually identical to Nader's. And uh, when you say Gore is thicker than Nader, are we to take this to mean that you're supporting him because uh, of familiar connections? Because... Uh, he supports NAFTA, GATT, corporate managed trade. Uh, he is totally inadequate on the environment and health, and he depends. He has a dependence on corporate money. So I'd like to hear your your view on that. Well, I certainly sympathize with your position, and you haven't said anything that I regard as untrue about Gore. There's a bit more to Nader that I well remember when I was with Dr. Spock, I was co-chairman of the People's Party, 1968 to about, I don't know, 70, 72. And uh, Nader made no statement about the Vietnam War. He 
avoided it, and that was the the great issue of our of that period of time. I'm not pointing a finger at him. I'm just saying that I, I would find him a more attractive figure politically if indeed uh, he had taken a stand. No, I, I see. I, I well, I've been through this already. I, yes, there's a good point in making a not a duopoly, but a third party. But there isn't a duopoly. There's a monopoly. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party are the same party. They're the corporate party of America. They're paid for by the same people. Yes, Gore is part of that. But between an intelligent duopolist, or monopolist, I should say, and an unintelligent one, like Bush, I'm afraid I would vote for, despite the or because, perhaps, of the family connection for the more intelligent one. One of those two is going to be elected, and it better be Gore of the two, that he is totally unsatisfactory on many issues that I care about and you care about, is something else. And I don't even know it's, if it's personal. I don't know him. I can't speak for him. But I would certainly say he's part of the most corrupt political culture that the United States has ever seen. We've had some bad patches before, but this is like nothing else. Uh, he is part of a system. Can he transcend it? I doubt it. But I hope he can. That's the best I can do. Howard Zinn or Allen Ginsberg? I don't know who Howard Zinn is. Historian. Allen Ginsberg was an old, old friend of mine. And uh, he's wonderful. He, uh, on sexual diversity, he was wonderful. And... Uh, he was just, he was a, a charming man, and, and I miss his not being alive. Next call, Springfield, Missouri. Yes, sir. Um, do you talk about uh, there being a police state and that sort of thing, uh, having developed after World War II? Uh, two major futuristic police states, if you will, have been uh, written about and uh, celebrated quite a lot this century in terms of... Uh, or what I'm speaking of is, uh, of course, Orwell and, and uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Um, of the two, which do you feel that we're more approaching? Well, I must say, Aldous Huxley sounded a lot more fun than ours with that soma everybody was taking. Of course, I suppose we can say the drugs are the equivalent today, but I don't, I don't see us going in either of those directions. Uh... Everything changed after 89. We lost our enemy. It takes a lot of money to create opinion as powerful as the opinion our ownership created for us in the Russians are coming and communism is everywhere when it isn't anywhere, at least not in the United States it wasn't. Uh, I see it more as too few people have too much money. Too many people have too little. And the graspingness uh, and the po total power of corporate America, if you own the New York Times, if you own the President, if you own the Congress, uh, there is no way for the people to express themselves. There is no, there is no means of redress. You can't say we've got a great out of the West, out of the Monongahela Valley came a man, a titan. You can't do that anymore. Times won't report the great new leader his speeches will not be recorded. They have silenced just about every dissenting voice in the country and done it very, very successfully. We have C-SPAN here, for which we should all be very thankful that at least they are able to 
fall, as it were, between the cracks of a pretty monolithic structure. There isn't much else. So does the Internet give you hope that... Uh, I don't understand the Internet. I mean, I, I don't know what it's all about. I, I don't use it. I look at it. I've seen several sites with my name on it, and uh, one is run by a guy who seems to be making money out of it. Somebody told me. I don't know. Uh, yes, it, it, anything that one person or one corporation cannot control is obviously going to be free or potentially free. So maybe that is an answer. I don't, but not my subject. Miami. Uh, Mr. Vidal, let me say it's an honor to speak to you. I, I came to you uh, at 25 years old, late in life, but fortunately before the... Uh, establishment and the propaganda, the admittedly impressive job, I was able to turn a once idealistic 14-year-old into a bitter and curmudgeon at age 27. But uh, a question and a comment. First off, I'd like to ask if you think it's possible in my lifetime for someone to campaign and have a successful shot of being president without uh, abiding to the agenda of the Jesus Christers, as if to say someone who is uh, an agnostic who sees religion and what it's done and, and campaign on that trend. And the second point is that uh, I think you're much too harsh on your old friend John Kennedy. Uh, he, his, his idealism still rings true for today, and I think in, uh, in light of the revisionists of the last 20 years, he comes across as a better president and certainly a more idealistic figure than the crop uh, that is today. Thank you very much. Well, on Jack Kennedy, um, I knew him pretty well. And he was one of the most charming men I've ever known, one of the funniest. But he, um, first of all, he didn't have a liberal bone in his body. It was ambition, ambition. And he really believed in the Cold War. You know, Truman and Eisenhower were two old pros. They knew the Cold War had been cooked up by Truman. The Russians are coming so that we could establish NATO, the CIA, militarize the economy, control our own people, not to mention everybody else who falls under our sway. They're very cynical. And in fact, Eisenhower, in his farewell to the nation in January 61, when Jack came to office, he warned of the military-industrial complex. He also, something that people forget, he warned of the influence on the universities of the, of the military-industrial complex. He said, once a university accepts a large federal allocation of funds, that university ceases to be free, where you should have free inquiry, etc., and uh, you will not have it because of the necessity they will feel, I'm interpreting now, not quoting him, that they will feel uh, the government wants, and this is the effect of the history departments, they are serving up history, even near history, like uh, Kennedy. Uh, they're serving it up in order to create a kind of false picture of a country that uh, anybody can be president and uh, land of opportunity, of the people, by the people, for the people. All that has been erased in the last 50 years. There is nothing left of it except false histories and hagiographies and what was his other question? It was about winning the White House. Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. As an agnostic, I, I think you better keep quiet about it because uh, Jefferson got caught on that and Lincoln almost got caught. 
uh, both were agnostics. Lincoln came to use God a lot in speeches in his last uh, year or two. All, the Almighty and God, he never mentioned Jesus. Uh, in all of the Federalist papers, the Founding Fathers, God is mentioned only twice. Jesus is not mentioned at all. You might tell some of your Jesus Christ of friends that the founders of the country were men of the Enlightenment. And by and large, they were either agnostic, atheist, or not interested. Uh, they, 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 they nearly got Jefferson, who finally said he was a deist, which means nothing at all. He just thought there was probably a god. And slithered out of that one. Lincoln wrote a book called... In, uh, pamphlet called Infidelity, meaning not believing in God. And he showed it to Herndon, his law partner, and Herndon said, this is an all-out attack on Christianity. I said, oh, this is great stuff, said Herndon, now burn it, because you're going to be president. So don't publish Infidelity. Our three hours is finished. Uh, <laughs> are we about to say hallelujah? As uh, we close, let me show you once again Gore Vidal's latest no novel. It is called The Golden Age. It is the seventh and final in the series of books chronicling American history, published by Doubleday and available across the country in bookstores. Mr. Vidal, thank you for spending so much time with us. We appreciate it. You can see Book TV's three-hour in-depth interview with author, playwright, and essayist Gore Vidal Again tonight at midnight.